Welcome to the 5 and I'm on Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, we got editor Jamie Kirkpatrick, whose new film, Old Henry, has just been released in theaters. Uh, but also joining me, Ted. Yes, I'm back. Ted. After a long spell. It's Try always a long spell. So hopefully hopefully, uh, you, you fans out there are... Uh, are ready for to hear me babble again well actually not as much you guys are you two editors get together you guys uh shop talk yeah there's a lot of shop talk a lot of shop talk it's good it's fascinating shop talk yeah but uh, it was really interesting so i didn't get the much word, uh, edge word uh, word in edgewise That's oh it. you got to it you it, it, it snatched victory <laughs> from the jaws of defeat my friends would be so proud um but first off what did you watch this week dad well uh what, I, can we talk about the one we watched together because well, that's one of my big well ones. let me just mention I'll, I'll mention i'll rattle them off and then we'll get back to that okay but okay, then, okay. Uh, the one we watched together was venom and then I saw the original Frankenstein, the original director, back-to-back yesterday. And then I saw The Eyes of Tammy Faye last night in the theater. Which and, I'm curious to see that. And then, of course, we were going to talk about Open Range, so I did watch that, too. So. Um, yeah, and we also... Um, uh, okay, the the one... I, we watched two movies together this week, uh, but the one... What was the other one? The subject of this episode, Old Henry. Oh, oh yeah, well, yeah, of course, obviously. Old yeah, Henry. and, and uh, Okay. Um, but, uh, I watched the many saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel oh, uh, uh, at home. I watched it at home. Okay. I watched it with my friend, Ryan Mullen, who is an expert. So how was it? I'm still trying to process it. I think it was really good. Uh, if you're not, if you haven't watched all the Sopranos, can you still enjoy it? I think so. Here's the, here's the ways I'm, do, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out because all the things I liked most about it were the references and the way it recontextualized the original episode because there's all these stories they've told about on the show and the majority of the stories you find out you get to see how they really happen and you find out that they're bullshit and i i guess you know in a weird sense technically if you're not haven't seen sopranos this is you're seeing the first one this is a prequel so you can technically i guess you could watch it but i'm sure it, going, you know darn well retroactively there's things put in there for the fans that are fans yeah to really get a extra uh uber text the the part i'm having trouble figuring to. out is if you go back to our episode on david chase not fade away oh, know, which that, is a yeah. great movie but, but, he didn't, but he didn't direct this though he didn't direct this and that's the thing is like there's a certain david chase if you listen to these podcasts he's doing right now when he came out, like he really wanted to be a director and he got stuck in TV. And by the time he got to Sopranos, he's writing some really idiosyncratic stuff and uh, some with soul and a lot of depth. And he should have been a director, but he only directed the pilot in the final episode of Sopranos and not fade away. And he didn't direct this. And, and Why? It's, it's, it sounds like there's uh, health issues in the family. Oh, so wow. it's, it's, it's not, it's, it was, and also th- th- so there's not that there's a certain level of weirdness but also like life is real when it's the most it's most bland feeling that sometimes isn't is chase style that is i can't tell if it's there in the movie or not one of the weirdest things i'm finding no one talk about is the movie is not a hundred percent stylistically of a piece with the show like there's an extreme color palette in the in the movie that's not in the show at all and the show was not the show was gorgeous looking, so it's 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 a choice. And they got um, oh, is it Alan Taylor directed it? It came over from the show. He directed some episodes mm. of the show. So it was a choice. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to try to get it in. I, I I've only seen one season of Sopranos, so I I and that, I've kind of forgotten it. I've, I've been I'm that's on my bucket list. But obviously. the movie we watched together, uh-huh. we had to drag you to watch Venom. Well, too. yeah, I almost did. It was a, it was a screening too, and I, yeah. and I almost didn't. I almost bypassed it. But uh, yeah, but okay. All I'm going to say is, remember my first reaction was, it's a cupcake. <laughs> it's a 
uh, a hostess cupcake, processed uh, cupcake. I, 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 a lot of people I talked to said, like, did you see the first one? Then you should know what you're getting into. And we're talking about Venom here, folks. The, yeah. Uh, the, and uh, then the, the sequel, Let There Be Carnage, uh, which uh, it's it really is one of our best actors um, suddenly jumping into this teen, like, teen male, like, icon of... And you know, you know, we were talking about Venom and Carnage afterwards, the comic stuff, and it really hit me. Like, even when you and, and Aaron Smith uh, and I were all talking about this afterwards, I immediately defaulted to the normal. Oh well, I came of age when Image was going up, and oh, there's an artist artist company that was had no su- depth or substance to it, and all that, and like automatically defer, defer deferential to my the, the comics I liked as a kid. But there's a part of me that wants to like. Like it's some modern comic artists like Jonathan Hickman has come out and said like, you know, Rob Liefeld had a power to him. You know, Tom McFarlane and his day had a power to him. And like, I shouldn't, oh, I shouldn't short sell it. No. I mean, when they were at Marvel and DC before image was formed, I, I, uh, I even, I noticed it. And I part, noticed and, them. And I mean, part of their popularity now is that everyone when Spawn came out in particular, everyone gave McFarlane shit because it's like, it seems like a pretty reductive, like, what are your two popular characters you draw on Batman and Spider-Man? How's the easiest way to design them? And also have change that defy gravity involved with them. But I mean, clearly the reason he's become popular in the year is he's a design genius. Like, and some of these, uh, you're, yeah, I'm getting no reaction from you on no. that. Well, I mean, we're just going down a, we're going down a major rabbit hole here. The one thing uh, I want to say that I realized after seeing the movie was, and it was the one big problem I had with the movie, is that we started talking about, one of the things whenever you watch a credit to a comic book movie, your favorite part, or the part you always kind of like point out and light up at, is the special things where they name the creators. And you find out it's whether they're going to, they're not going to get paid for any of this stuff, although <laughs> supposedly the lawsuits and the works might change that. But you, there's like, oh, this is they're going to actually acknowledge it. And so it said um, Venom created by David Michelin and Todd McFarlane and Carnage created by David Michelin and Mark Bagley. Mark Bagley was my artist. To this day, he still, I love him. And I started realizing after the fact, the movie designs Carnage as just like, there's a joke even in there where it's like, oh, it's red, it's a red Venom. But Carnage, the way Mark Bagley designed him, is way more interesting and cool. He was much more um lithe and kind of uh small but um he had these tendrils so he looked like a snake a mixture between a snake and blood constantly writhing blood because well, he, they he, do that in the movie you know kind of uh, it's, there. it's there he looks more muscular to me well the, the body yeah but but there's a lot of the tendrils are there there are yeah i, I guess i i'm also i'm not 100 percent like the design on these movies are kind of poop yeah they're just i i don't know it's you know uh, i think i think you come just because the funniest thing about the movie is the internal dialogue between Vidim and eddie brock and like that's where like tom hardy like who was a co he was he uh, uh did the had a co-story credit on this movie yeah. with carrie marcel yeah and i, and I remember watching the, the, the and it continues in the second one but watching the first one I'm like Boy, this is this is a really strange performance by Tom Hardy. Yeah, and I get my own little weird theory is, and I, I lo- adore Tom Hardy, uh, like Locke and Inception, and just uh, you know Bronson, all that stuff. But um, to see him in this, I'm like, and I'm like, okay, but now I'm thinking, oh, he's having fun. Yeah, he's having he, fun. I, I mean, he. I hate that stigma. Comic books are kids, or you know, juvenile, or whatever you want to call. It. You know, the whole stigma that still seems. From ever since Batman sixty six, and out. and to be fair, the, the, I need to be very blatantly clear. This is these two movies are abundantly dumb movies. Yeah, they're just they're, and he's having fun. He goes, I'm going to have fun with this, and I'm going to I'm going to do a little bit of a 
kooky spin and have and just he's he's uh he's he's stretching some muscles that you don't normally see with him in this movie i think as in, in terms of perform, performance so that's kind of interesting i think but even though i'm i think kind of be baffled at first and so. to certain still still baffled but the other movie we watched together we just finished today right before we recorded our episode was old henry which uh I, I didn't know what to expect. I really liked it. Yeah, no, I, I, it was uh very, very, uh, I think, I think Western fans are going to love it. And there's some really interesting uh, story points and uh, it gets the Western look, you know, down pat. You know? What was so funny was you were talking for like um, the first, I want to say, you stop, you, there's a plot point in around 20 minutes or 30 minutes in and you're just it was that point in the movie where you're not sure like what kind of movie we're watching if it's yeah. going to be a quality level and and like you would point out like um a certain story choice and you're like oh this is a trope you didn't well, say the word trope but you almost used the word trope but there, there was one thing i i did make i i, I was interesting I, I was like god this is this this part of the story i'm like why is, you know it's just uh but it paid off. It, yeah. It, My point it, was whenever, I, whenever I, I was just kind of quiet. Cause I was like, I think this movie's going to be good. And I want to see how it, repli- yeah. it, it unfolds. And sure enough, it's on purpose. It's yeah. on purpose. folks. Oh, there was so much, this, yeah. there was a very lean, very. And as we get into the interview with Jamie, like it's, also a very informed Western towards other Western and half this episode, I should also mention, even though it com- comes in and out, is technically about uh, Kevin Costner's Western movies and the postman yeah. and particular, his movie open range. Yeah. We were supposed to, I think we got more off track on the uh, shop talk, Yeah, but you know, that's expected, but well, maybe we'll revisit Costner down the road. So at some point I'm sure we will. Yeah, because I watched all three of them, and and they are um, yeah, all his. He only has only directed. He three films, only directed three films, which is weird because you think he's done more than that. And for someone that opened up with an Oscar winner and some pretty big celebration for his potential career, I kind of miss. I guess I think a lot of times I kind of uh, mix in the Kevin Reynolds films because he's I can, friends. I think that's a good. And, and yeah. Costner has a very tight control over Kevin and, and when he directs and and, the, and he's collaboration doesn't yeah. mean not control. Collaboration. Yeah, no, that's right, collaboration. All right. Yeah, because I don't want I don't want Kevin Costner mad at me. Anyway, here's Jamie Kirkpatrick. We're talking Old Henry and Old Range or Old Range Open Range Open Range. Old Henry was posting out of Nashville, or were you you guys were doing it entirely remote? Well, both, right? So. I was the only person not in Nashville. Um, they, the, 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 not only was the crew there, but this company that produced this film and is going to produce some others, and we can get into that later, um, Hideout Pictures is all based in Nashville. Um, okay. And they, like, they produce a lot of stuff for like CMT, Country Music Television. When I was doing my IMDb dive, it seemed like there was a lot of overlap. And then you had uh, uh, Trace Atkins, obviously, in this. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, so, you know, but I was hired on, I mean, they, Potsy was looking for Annette. I mean, I can't speak to the process. I wasn't privy to it, but you know, it was clear that they wanted like an editor. I mean, I, I, I I wasn't about to say a real editor. That sounds horrible. (laughs) I, I didn't, I don't mean that, but, but whatever they, they, they wanted somebody who had like feature film experience. And, um, and so, you know, they found me and they were like, well, especially in COVID, like we're, we're totally fine doing this remote. Their one, their one stipulation was that we need you to cut in premiere because 
our whole shop is Premiere based or or Adobe based, I should say. How was that? And so it it was fine is the answer. Totally okay. fine. Okay. Um and uh and at first I was kind of like, uh, okay. And I knew I could cut fine in Premiere. I've done other shows on it, but I was just kind of like, well, my only hesitation is kind of like not being super familiar with like how to turn over and things like that and feeling like I'd been kind of heard through the grapevine that that could have been problematic and whatever. So because of that, I basically told him like, can you give me 48 hours before I tell you definitively that this is okay? Because he kind of said like, look, if you feel like if it's a deal breaker, we can talk about the Avid, but, and I was like, I don't think it's a deal breaker, but give me, give me a couple of days. So I did like a deep dive into like researching Premiere on features and asked a lot of friends. And interestingly, uh, there were certainly some people who were like, no, 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 run, don't do it. Like blah, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but then I also had like a, a, like a decent sized contingent of people going, Hey, like, you know, I have a friend who's working with Fincher and like Fincher's done his last like three things on Premiere and like it like it works fine. I, I so I've been working on Premiere lately and I was complaining to somebody about it and someone then turned around just like, don't listen to what David Fincher says because he's not an assistant editor. He doesn't have to deal with any of that. Well, that's true. But believe it or not, I, I ran, I moderated the Editors Guild panel for Mank when it came out. Okay. And so I got to know Ben, I'm going to blank on Ben's name right now, but he's the first assistant editor on Mank and he also did like Mindhunter. Okay. Um, and I mean, he's also like a, he's more, I, I, I don't mean this in any sort of negative way. He's more of like an engineer than he is like an assistant. Like he's, he's a genius. Well, his, Fincher's AEs always strike me as, as, as amazing. Like the, um, the, I've always heard there's a, a, through the grapevine, like his stabilization process is really involved and awesome. It's, I mean, doing that panel, I mean, that was the first time I really understood the level, the, 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 the granularity of his filmmaking. I had always kind of heard about it, but when, mm -hmm. especially Ben and uh, you know, when they described it, you're like, Oh yeah. I mean, he said, he said like 93% of all the shots in the movie have been affected. Like there is some, some digital difference. Like they are not camera originals. Like, Maybe, he's like maybe beyond six just your normal digital intermediate stuff yeah yeah and and he goes and sometimes it might just be simple like just like we just we want the you know the angle just tweaked a bit or whatever but but he's like but a lot of times it's like full-on frame stitching wow. you know digital manipulation so anyway i had already done that that panel and so like i i you know i specifically started searching stuff that they had talked about and obviously like their post team had done a lot of press about mank in like the academy like uh campaign and all of that stuff because obviously they were up for an editing oscar so i was able to find a lot of stuff about it and just through that i was like okay like this is doable so they when i was making the deal they were like so do you like do you want your own assistant blah 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 and, I, and I did. Generally, I do. I have a couple of people that I generally work with very closely. But they did say they're like, we do have a guy down here who like has worked with us and like knows our workflow in terms of our shop and like technically and, you know, he'd like to do it. And it was one of those cases where I was like, 
all right. And my regular assistant was not available right then. So I thought, okay, this is, I think I need to be like just smart rather than loyal about this one. And knowing that like I can edit in premiere, but that's kind of about as far as I like get. So we brought him on and he was kind of a godsend. Like he, he really did know it. And the one thing was because of everything I had heard from like the Fincher people, I knew that this new thing had just come out like only, gosh, probably like six months earlier called Productions, which essentially is Adobe's answer to shared shared uh, projects, which was always the problem with Premiere, in my opinion, before. I'm like, as an editor, it works fine, but I can't easily share my project with anybody. Um, I won't get into why anyone who's used Premiere and tried to do that will know why. It's like, it, it was just so... My my last project, the group project thing, was the nightmare part. Well, but were you using productions or no? I don't know if it was a product. I don't think so because uh, it was really odd because I was using a remote software where I was going through somebody else's computer. Yeah, and me too. One one of the air. You did you do this entire movie on the remote software? Yeah. Well, almost. I'll tell. I'll get. How fast was it? It had its moments, but but they this place in Nashville, I guess, had did did that a lot. So they were like, here's how we're doing it, and. I mean, we just were using like Splashtop, which is like third-party software. It wasn't like they had some proprietary thing, but they they had used it enough before that they knew how it worked. And I will say, just to quickly jump ahead, like at the end, after the director had already seen an initial cut, and then we were really mostly doing notes, I did, and they had finished shooting. I was like, you have to send me a media drive. Like before we couldn't because they were doing all the dailies there. Right. And so it didn't make sense to do like a shuttle thing. So, but once everything was done, I was like, I need everything cloned onto a media drive and you got to send it to me. And if I need to remote in so that you guys can see something, that's fine. But when I'm working by myself, like I just need to. And once I plugged the media drive in and started working that way, I just remember being like, oh God, like this is what I've been missing. And I didn't. It's like when you put reading glasses on for the first time and yeah. you realize like, oh, I've been going blind for like two years. Like, and I didn't know. It's so frustrating how slow you get when you're doing remote. And yeah. you think it's like, am I not, am I sucking right now? Am I not getting anything? Like, yeah, it's, I knew for me, it was more of like, I knew like, you know, cause again, it's, listen, it's an action film basically. So it's like, you know, the specificity of the edit points are real important. It's like, is the the squib hitting on the fourth frame or the third frame or whatever? And like, normally I can do that more. I prefer to do that more by feel, right? I like, I play it through and I just, it's kind of the merch technique of like, am I hitting stop at the same spot every time? And if I am, I know Mm. that's like, that's definitely where it should be. You can't do that in a remote setup because it's like, it's never stopping where you think it's going to stop. It's always a few frames later. Once I got the media drive, I literally went, once I realized that had happened, I was like, okay. So I just, I remember calling and being like, I need half a day to be left alone. Cause I've, I just, I think I lied and was like, I'm, I found a little technical glitch. I can fix it, but you got to just leave me alone for, and they were like, yeah, no, no problem. When in fact, what I was doing was I just went through the entire film, just cut by cut, realizing like, nope, that's off. That's off a couple of frames. And I just, I tweaked the entire movie. like you know, I don't want to, no, no, no. I know exactly what you're talking about. Did you get a reaction? They didn't, I never heard anyone ever noticed if they did, they didn't tell me, which, which it it would have been nice if you got a reaction. I know. I know if they're like, Oh, it's better. What did you do? Or like, even you like that magician thing every once in a while, when you do a certain thing and no one knows what you did, but they're just like, 
why does this feel better right now? And you you worked your ass off for a completely invisible technique, and you're like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mystery. Yeah, yeah, totally. But so that, but aside from that, I mean, there were you know, of course, there's certain days where like, you know, the internet's being wonky, and so the connection's not working well. And I mean, I I I definitely had some frustrations, but there was no alternative. I'm like, well, I I'm not going to Nashville, and they're not asking me to go to Nashville, so it was like. I just made the most of it and it was fine. Um, and this, the production software, which is like, it's basically like a new platform within premiere that again, allows you it, the best way to think of it is like, where in avid, everything is project based. And then within okay. the project, you can have folders and bins in premiere. You have to think of it more of like projects in premiere basically just become folders. So you can have multiple projects. And the idea okay. is like, not only can I, can we both be in the same project, but you don't have to be. So I had a cuts project and there was a separate dailies project. So my assistant could be working on the day's dailies totally separate from me while I'm cutting. And then he could go, Hey man, I left you a bin. Those two scenes are ready. And I could go into the shared project, grab those two bins, open them up and start cutting with them. Um, so it's basically just like Avid's worked for, 25 years with like if you're on a shared storage solution but and it worked really really well i hope so i i with the finishing up the story from earlier i was working two versions back and one of the errors was i updated the current version or the most recent current version they're like all the work you did today like the assistant editor had to go back in and like reformat it back to the old version and all that like Oh. Yeah, and and then like, um, but it was my first experience with it. On top of doing the de the, the uh, jump desktop remote yeah. system, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I just and they're trying to figure this out for the first time too. Yeah. So it was everything seemed fineish. <laughs> but um, how so? Wait, how long were you editing on on Old Henry? Not very long. Um, it was literally one of my shortest uh uh projects and i i'm one of those people i'm i'm not great with dates like i once something's happened i kind of forget so it, it was the shoot was 21 days um okay this felt this i don't know if it just there's a certain amount of expertise uh, or in the in the movie that that came across but it felt like i i was i just thought there's more shoot days than that because everyone wants to do 21 days now I, yeah i mean what i listen i'm very not proud because i didn't have anything to do with this but i mean it's you know, I'm going to, I am an, I am an evangelist for how they shot this movie. Not in, not meaning this is how everyone should do it. I just mean, it's, it's like the fact that the film is doing so well and getting the kind of reviews it's getting. I, I like we, at the time we were doing it, we all knew like we're doing this tiny little movie because it was by all accounts. Yes. You know, yes, we had Tim Blake Nelson and Steven Dorff, but, and it's like, but, they were doing a tiny little movie. They were working for a fraction of whatever they, you know, I assume whatever they normally get paid and all of those things. But like the incredible thing about it was they, and this is a little backstory, like the entire expanse of the movie that you see, which presumably takes place when you watch the film over like a couple of counties in like Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma territory, right? Right. That's one private ranch outside of Nashville with okay. several hundred acres. I, I don't know the exact number. I wasn't there, but like it's private property. So because of that and, and the house that is Henry and Wyatt's house that where a lot of the action takes place 
was already there, but uninhabited. Like it was like an old like trail house or what, I don't even know what you'd call it, but like, and you know, so they were able to pour whatever money they had like into like that house and making it look, you know, and furnishing it and whatever and doing all this other stuff. Um, but it was like over that huge hill that you see, especially you see throughout the movie, but like, especially at the end, like is the, the rancher's home. Like, so if you crested that hill in real life, there'd like be a whole nother like house and barn and ranch there. But because of how, ran you know, it's again, it's hundreds of acres. And it had like, if you went to, I I'm making this up because I wasn't there. So I don't know the actual directions, but if you went right. just like, you know, a thousand yards to the east, you hit that little like river, like babbling brook section, you know, that the guy kind of like sneaks through when he's like checking out the homestead or like. If you went over the other set of hills, you like see that amazing expanse where like the 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 one guy is like checking out the trail and saying like there was somebody here, but he's like you know he, he covered his tracks really well. It's like it's all one property. And I was trying I was trying to do the math of locations, but I think I was doing the math of buildings. So yeah. and you you're always dismissive of open, especially in westerns where half of it is the wide shots and the vistas. Right. Like you're just like, well, it's scenery. You just got to find a place where no, there aren't buildings, you know, so. And, and what's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And like, you know, what's even cooler is be, given that this whole film was shot during COVID pre-vaccine, by the way, like pre-vaccine. This was 20, January, 2021 to March. Uh, That's what Wikipedia had. <laughs> um, no, it's earlier. Uh, it would have been shot. Wikipedia was wrong? Yeah. Um, Shock. It was shot November through December. I don't know the exact dates. I just realized I can't like remember. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, but so pre-vaccine and, but again, because it was like they were on private property and it was a, I don't know the number. It was a very small crew, like 20 something, like really small. Um, okay. Which, but you understand like, keep like, there's live animals and stunts and like all these gags. It usually takes like yeah. teams of people on those crews. Um, but they were able to like, just kind of keep it as like this, uh, you know, almost like a theater rep group where it's just like, it's the same little group of people and they were testing all the time and, you know, doing all the safety stuff. And so it was at the time it was happening. I kept thinking like, gosh, these guys are really proving how, not only how you can shoot a movie during COVID, but how you can shoot, the kind of movie that would seem impossible. Um, right. But, you know, it's also like most of it's outside. And so therefore much safer. It's like, you know, the, the, the scenes that are inside are like not super complex and don't require a ton of crew to be like, be in there. Um, so it's really, I, I, I just all the credit to Potsy and, you know, and his deep, I mean, really his DP, John Matichek, um is like, it's it's amazing what they pulled off. Like every day I was seeing dailies, I was like, oh my God. It's funny, I was I, I, I will I take a little bit of credit, or I'd like to take a little bit of credit in like being the first one to like say to them, because Potsy's very like modest. He's very modest. Um Okay. And I was the one like sending him text like seven or eight days in going like, dude, this stuff is gorgeous. Like the dailies I'm getting are some of the 
most beautiful I've ever looked at. And he, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, like he's great. You know, Matichek's amazing. He's great. I, it would be that sort of thing. And <laughs> and then like as the weeks kind of went on, and I was actually cutting scenes and being like, oh, this is gonna really work. Like this, this, this stuff cuts together like butter and blah blah blah. Then it, my texts were more like, do do you guys understand like what you're making? Like, do you understand like you're making something that's more elevated than it was pitched to me? And that okay. like, even your producers like are yeah. like, I don't think they get it. I don't think they get, you know, and like, there was a joke they used to call it. They're like, they're like, it's going to be a Walmart Western meaning like, like we're going to like, I, I know what, I know exactly what straight that the video. Is. Yeah. I know exactly what that means. Exactly. Right. And, and those, as they pointed out to me, those movies do super well. Like if you're a producer, that's a good business model because you know, if you've got trace Adkins on your cover somewhere and you know, like, uh, whatever, just, just if your marketing is kind of smart and, you know, kind of the entire like Southern half of the country, like loves that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying Northerners don't, I just mean like, you know, that stuff like sells, it's, it's just good popcorn entertainment. So you can absolutely like make your money back on a small movie like this, like pretty quick with those sorts of deals. But this like, probably like the third or fourth time I heard them say Walmart Western, I was like, guys, I'm so sorry, but you, I gotta, I gotta stop you. Like, it's not that you keep saying that, but I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not like, this is the sort of thing you should be thinking about entering like in the, you know, on the festival circuit and, you know, and they were like, Oh really? And so like, I was really pushing for that. When did they start to really click? Like after a few, the friends and family screenings or when there that ne we never did that. Never had a friends and family like, screening. I, like, you just you just got through saying how the efficiency in a COVID production works. So of course, obviously that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I mean, it just it was it really was just going to like Potsy and you know the producers, the the people at Hideout, um, and then eventually to the folks at Shout at Shout um, Shout Studios. Is that, is that is that the are they connected with Shout Factory? Yep. yep. The, okay. Shout Factory is basically their like mer their merchandising arm, and then they also have a studio, which I don't I. I I don't know. I don't know if that's been around a really long time. I don't think it has, but that was, I don't tell I think they've got it in. I mean, I think it's been a recent thing where they starting to get into uh, doing their own features. Now yeah. And stuff. Yeah. So, okay. um, so, you know, and the, I think that's one, once they saw the cut um, and, you know, I have like, I have a good friend who's, you know, who's involved with like the Woodstock film festival. And she was talk like we were talking about a previous film I did that was going to, screen there and she asked what i was doing and i told her and she's like you know any she chance i that. could like see the is there a trailer and i was like mm, let me check i mean yes there's a, we had cut a teaser but i was like i can't just send it out so right, i asked right, right. i asked potsy just to text him, like hey would you be cool like they're asking about it would you mind if i just sent it to her and like they're pros they won't send it out and he's like yeah sure and it was like i sent it out and it was like that night like i got an email from like the director of the festival being like how do we contact this director? Like, we want this. And I was like, <laughs> and then I knew I was like, okay, like that's, it wasn't just me being overly precious or right. proud about the project. Like other people are also seeing that this is better. This is not a Walmart Western. This is some, this is better. So I, it just seems like there's a lot more, I'm used to the stories where, um, since you're the last person in the process and you're the one to put together all the elements, finally, there's an exact opposite tendency there of like being the one to be like, 
you guys had high aspirations. Let's let's make it best set as we can of it. Before uh, let me interject with just a uh, a side about Walmart movies that uh, I just noticed that Alex Cox movie went straight to Walmart. You're kidding? Yeah, it was a some weird western, low budget thing. I haven't watched it yet. Do you know what it's called? That's a kind of, uh, it's got it's like a spaghetti western. Uh, I no, I can't remember off bat. It's like it's a, it's Kurosawa. He's doing oh, no. A, is this the? Didn't he he like uh make a Kurosawa script and one of the unmade Kurosawa scripts? Well, it, I, well, that was early on. I think this is. I can't think. I, but no, I, no. Somebody's been trying to make. There's like two maybe, or three new it Kurosawa scripts. Maybe it scripts. is. But it's straight. It show, I'm at the Walmart one night, and all of a sudden there it is. Like I'm like Alex Cox, and it's a western. And I'm like, okay, well, this is strange. Um, huh. So, um, so anyway, I just, I just had to throw that in. Uh, I, I don't want to leave old Henry behind, no, no. and we'll come back to this and go to your career. <laughs> but originally, the the idea, um, the format of this podcast has changed a few times to where, like, it's it's just more, even though we want to help people promote stuff, we want to talk about like just random movies more than anything else, <laughs> and find an excuse for that. And you, and before we get to the uh, open range and Kevin Costner's filmography and other Westerns, um, you and I first off had this really bizarre email exchange where one of them disappeared after I asked you for a really long list of like, I asked you for, um, I asked you for a list of Westerns that, you know, maybe not on everyone's. Well, no, I think you said my favorite, what are your favorite Westerns? And that's why I, that's why I sent it all broken out, like. I'm I'm gonna read what you what you sent me and Ted. You can you can chime in on this, but it was a great list because a lot of times when I ask people like, come on, let's talk some movies no one talks yeah. about. I don't get good answers on this, but you started out with classics and you suggested High Noon first, which because it's all about editing. Right. Uh, then you went to the Cowboys, which I have not seen. Ugh. What? Yeah. Are you looking to? Are you looking to I, Ted I, for a comment? I, 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 I guess he's. I, I. I mean, I can interject on all of them. I mean, yes, I, interject. No, but I will. This I'm, is a podcast. Just, you, it's for commentary. People I know, to have opinions. I'm just. I'm just waiting. But, um, but let I, me just. I'm going to say one thing about the Cowboys, just because if you said you haven't seen it, I won't say too much. But no, you said in the email, and I think I already knew what. Like, because um, uh, on one of my favorite uh, movie podcasts is the uh, movies that made me for the trailers from Hell, and yeah, Josh Olson always talks about how what happens at the end of that movie scarred him forever. Yeah. Um. Well. Yeah, I mean, no, no particularly big trail uh, uh, spoiler because it's well known. But it's like I think I think John Wayne only dies in like two movies he ever made. I think that's yeah. like the okay. thing I've heard, and the Cowboys is one of them. So, uh, you know, aside from that, what I was going to say is like, so there's, you know, one of my favorite like character actors uh, is this guy named Roscoe Lee Brown. Um, he's an African African American actor who was real big like in the kind of late 60s, 70s, and even in a great, great voice has a wonderful voice. Yeah. And as a quick, a good friend of mine is going to love that. I mentioned this publicly. He Roscoe Lee Brown was the voice of Darth Vader in the LP. Uh, I don't even know what you'd call it, but they went, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, Shane, I'm certain, but like, uh, like there was like an, there was a, a record you could buy, it was like the radio play of Star Wars. Like okay. it was just actors like doing Star Wars and there was sound effects, but it was not from the movie. It was just like kind of like a like a condensed radio play. And Roscoe Lee Brown, if I remember correctly, was Darth Vader. And for wow. some like I've always like no, that's why I know who he is. 
like he probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have been on my radar otherwise, but I, like on the back of the LP, which in my day, like you'd sit there listening to things and just like pour over like the liner notes and stuff and look at all the little pictures. So I knew this guy's face. And then years later, when I first saw the Cowboys, probably like on TV, um, I was like, oh my God, that's the dude that plays Darth Vader. And then he ends up having one of like the great speeches in any Western. Um, So, and I'm not going to give anything away, but specifically about him being black in that time. And it's like, when it happens, you're like, how in the hell did this make it into this movie? Because who directed Cowboys? Right, yeah. Anyone who knows anything about John Wayne, it's like, I mean, the guy was like super conservative and a, like a traditionalist. Right. And you, then there's there's this like three minute progressive left leaning speech that you're like, I, I can't believe like, and it's amazing. It's like really what elevates the movie for me of like not just being like this. It, it's an amazing, amazing moment. It's all over YouTube. People, it's like funny. I, I looked, it's like, some of the YouTube clips of just of him doing the speech have like, like millions of views. Like, so it's, I love, mm. and he died maybe somewhere in the last decade. I can't remember when, but um, that was like a big thing when he died, they were like all the news show, you know, s- spots were like showing him doing the speech. So. Wow. Mark Rydell. And, and, and I always with Rydell, he's an overlooked director. He's, he does really good work uh, over, over the years. Uh, what's the um... ongoing pond is another one. Uh, hmm. And uh, and uh, the Bette Midler movie with James Caan, uh, it's World War II. Well, I know I know Rydell from um, uh, Long Goodbye, but uh, oh yeah, acting in it. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, <laughs> I remember it's a great part. No, I'm I'm curious because I remember there was I can't remember what movie I, I remember being underwhelmed by, but uh, I, I, sh- I that sounds amazing. I need to see. Um, Left Handed Gun is actually on TCM's watch watch TCM's app right now, so I watched part of it no uh, the other day. Um, you said it's is Arthur Penn's first movie. Which I didn't know. I had to look. I just remembered it. And that's another one. Like, I actually haven't seen in a little while, but I remember being like, oh, that's a great. So I, I found that out kind of after the fact. I just, it's pretty fresh with me. I just watched, I finally caught up to it because I'm a big Arthur Penn fan. And uh, I thought the only thing that's interesting is Paul Newman. He is really working at it. He's, you know, the, the his, he's, you, okay. You know what's weird is I watched um, last week, uh, rewatched, um, uh, east of eden and so james dean was on my brain and i mean i've seen, I, for some reason i watched um uh, streetcar named desire recently and i don't really know much newman in the 50s beyond like cat on a hot tin roof right. and it really struck me that arthur penn was uh would have been like a a a, a broadway director or a new york director or, or for stage right yeah method and very so, much the, so the method the Ilya kazan feeling the vibe onto it like like um, just affectation for affectation's sake in a fifties movie. Like it's weird, but also like after, especially after watching it right after James Dean, I was thinking like, like it's a daddy issue thing or something. I don't know. It was just, did you say a daddy issue? Yeah. That was, <laughs> there, it was, there, there was something about Newman before Newman, like we're start, starters watching Newman in black and white. Like right. suddenly you're like, well, that's one of his weapons taken away from him is his eyes. But, um, or his blue eyes. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, it was, I, 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 it looked really interesting. I, the other funny thing was like that opening title credits. Um, it's Alexander Courage who did the Star Trek theme is did the music for oh, it. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah, no, that was, that was, those were the big takeaways I got from it, from what I, what I saw. Um, and then, um, 
I am loath to name this one just because I feel like it's going to hijack the whole podcast. But no, we don't. The man with no name. The man with no name trilogy. Right. Well, well, Leone's my god. That's why he says it. And probably a, a day does it go by when I, I mentioned Leone. That's why he's saying that. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to even go there because I'll. Talk, I've limited I'll, him. To, I'll hijack the whole. I limit him to one Leone reference per podcast. <laughs> right. Well, and that's I think on my thing I said something like these just kind of go without saying like they're in the canon. It's like there's no they've been so discussed it to go it just goes without saying that they're on, they should be on the list. So. Yeah, and if and if I ask you westerns, if you don't put it, then it seems like a. And a mission well, you know, but years ago they would not have been on the list. Sure, uh, and it, right. it's I'm I'm 62 years old, and I was like eight or nine, ten years old when those things came out oh, wow. and changed my world. Yeah. I mean, and probably one reason I'm a big cinema obsessive is because of Sergio. And here I'm hijacking it. All right, but anyway, we we but, uh, it's our, it I can remember it was those things were not on the radar and map critically, and you know it took a long time. You know, and now, and especially with the final endorsement by Quentin, yeah, to Tarantino, that it, now they're respected, you know, so well. And then we go to um, you had your end of era westerns, and also another hijack title, The Wild Bunch. Well, you know, 1906 here with the old Henry, I was like, oh, okay, where this will be interesting. I was mm. trying to, I was waiting to see if there was going to be some little uh, more modern interjections in this film because it was 1906. Uh, the city talk about the boy going to the city, that was about the, uh, it was really interesting. Yeah, there's that line he goes, like, there's tractors that can do this work in half the time or whatever. Right. But that's like, yeah. that's the little nod to like, yeah, like it's not the old West anymore. It just isn't. They're, they're living right. that life, but no one else is. Yes, you're right. I, I skipped one of your classics, The Shooting, which reason I, I, I kind of said we could we talked a little bit about that on our own Monty Hellman episode. Yeah, we did a thing about Monty Hellman talked about those. Yeah, those That's are cool. Yeah, amazing. Um, but back to your end of era, then you did The Shootist, which I the reason I went back is the I, other I, John I, Wayne dying. And uh, yeah, I right. Use those two titles, too. Uh, and speaking of uh, the shoot, Monty Hellman did uh, uh, in the Westerns. Have you seen any of the Bud Bedecker films? You know, uh, it's, fu it's funny you said that. I was just like just before we logged on like i was just like going through some like you know just just to kind of get my brain working like 50 you know 100 best films of all time i mean westerns of all time just to like kind of fire up my brain of like what else is out there and and it's funny i stumbled stumbled upon i think it's the the independent like out of england like had to listen and they mentioned his stuff specifically and i've that's one of those where like i know i've seen a few of those i but i once i was reading this list i'm like oh i I'm going to need to like find some time to go back and revisit these. Cause like, I don't remember them specifically as being like so amazing, but it seems like they're held in very high regard. So, Oh yeah. They, you'll be, you'll be amazed by them because the cachet on them has just grown and grown on those. And it's just the ones that uh, Bedecker did with the, uh, uh Randolph Randolph Scott. Scott. Yeah. Uh, and there's a nice there's a nice box set out there. I think they're going to get ready to release it again. And Clint Eastwood and Tarantino and uh, well, the, the, Taylor Hackford all show up, you know, just, oh, just to talk about over him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I was going to say last month there was a Buttaker section on cr the Criterion channel. They put up a bunch of this. So I think there's probably a new transfer that they did that's coming. Oh, right. Um, yeah. yeah. But Buttaker movies might strike you. There, there's, a, there's a squareness to them that might initially throw you. The, that, Not, the, no, no, no it, it, it gives away. There's there's a lot of subversives going under. Yeah. But I mean, you, uh, well, when Sergio, when Sergio saw Bud Buttaker at a festival, Sergio belted out, but, but I sold everything from you. <laughs> you know, uh, and 
And uh, so that's and it's uh, it's in the biography of Leone that he did that. Oh, this is cool. why you're limited to one per episode because I've heard that story on here maybe <laughs> five times. I'm sorry, Shane. Um, no, I have. That's a great. I, I, that's a great bit. Um, End of an era, Blazing Saddles, which I thought was which uh, I just watched recently. My old Snapper case DVD. I mean, that's how old a copy I have of that thing. Uh, and uh, that was yeah, it was fun revisiting. It was interesting revisiting that. I. It's funny. I like. I've 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 had that debate a couple of times with like like film friends. Where like I mean of course it's a western but like they're like Blazing Saddles really they're like I can see it like one of the great comedies I'm like well then you're you know with all due respect then you're missing some of the genius of Mel Brooks because anytime Mel Brooks makes like a quote unquote genre picture the 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 genius of him yes of course he's funny but it's the way he kind of like subverts all those like genre tropes and expectations and I can't think of any. Play. I mean, uh, Young Frankenstein is like a real close second, but like, you know, Blazing Saddles is, I mean, it's, I, what I always say about that movie is like, it's, it's not just ahead of its time. It's alone in its time. Like nothing yeah. else did what that movie did. And it's funny for me because like, I think about growing up, like my parents weren't like, my parents are like very like highly educated like East coast liberals. And we like moved to the Midwest and, you know, so they're like very smart, like open-minded people. Um, you know, they were at the March on Washington and all of that stuff. So, and wow. yet I remember them like, like vocally hating that movie because like of how often like they use the N word and like, and just, and like, you know, in the farting scene and all this stuff, they were just like, Oh, it's just like, and, it took me years the arm scene you all and so that was always in my head of like oh this is not a good movie it might be funny but like but then in high school i like rediscovered it and was just kind of old enough or mature enough to realize like no like this is actually like crazy subversive humor and then all of that stuff aside just the like social and political stuff aside like the ending when they literally break the fourth wall <laughs> is like it's it's so kind of just genius of and and I'm like if there was ever one moment that so definitively said that like westerns are dead and we're done doing them it's that yeah. it's that I mean yes yeah. the wild bunch that's what everyone always says but I'm like my god blazing saddles like when it just bursts into like a you know busby berkeley like you know whatever like musical it's just I mean if that's not you know, Brooks just saying like, okay, like it's, this is over like this. Well, that's what? a, that's a good, good point about comedy. It's the end of the genre. The end of, that happens with all the genres, spaghetti Westerns, they go through a political phase and then they go to a comedy phase. And when they hit the comedy phase, it's dead. It's, mm. it's, it's died. Uh, the Kung Fu craze went through that. Oh, spaghetti wondering... Western, spaghetti Western phrase. I'm wondering if superheroes are. Uh, yeah. Oh, it will. It, it'll but happen. they have, but they yeah. haven't. But um, no, the point I was going to make was that uh, the knock against Spaceballs was always that um, totally. you know, Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks didn't like Star Wars or wasn't into Star Wars. He likes Westerns. He likes uh, Frankenstein. And that's yeah. the reason that the, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Although I don't know how that works with Robin Hood and Dracula, you know. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but sticking to the end of the era, your next list line of lists were the anti westerns, oh. and Blazing Saddles is also on that. Yep. But also, I didn't. I, I still haven't figured out why I didn't want to talk about this because it's also probably one of my top five movies. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. <sighs> Just, yeah. I mean, what that 
that was one of those films where, I mean, I literally, I, I was not aware of it in any shape or form until I got to film school. And I took a class of, I don't remember, you know, what it was, but it, it focused on that, like, New Hollywood era. And that was one of them. And I, that was just one that, like, just blew me away. And I remember a lot of the other, like, kids in my class, like, not liking it because they were just like, it's kind of boring. And... <laughs> And like, of course I get that. But for me, I was always more into like, right. But it's like, you're waiting for the big like showdown shootout. And then it's this awful, pathetic, like what a horror, you know, just like it's everything that you never see in Westerns and like, and this, this moral ambiguity, like, well, there's, there's also this like, um, I don't know if that's one of the first ones or there's gotta be other ones, but the thing of almost modern Westerns now do are especially Deadwood was big into this is they're trying to do Darwinian capitalism of the, of, of the, of manifest destiny. Right. And I just watched the claim recently, which has got a big McCabe and Mrs. Miller vibe to very it. much. Yeah. I, um, I, the three posters I have in the basement, the fourth one, which I almost bought off eBay, but it was like, gonna be like 400 bucks was this like, it's this like a uh, vertical placard that had the original title. It's like the, um, Presbyterian church wager when it was still called that. Oh, that, and it, but it, that was the original title of the movie. Yeah. Oh, I don't know that story. It, okay. Well, I, I, I found a script online a few years ago and I think that was on the title of things, but I showed, um, when I was still working as a projectionist and we had the digital projector showed up, I, I showed McCabe Miss Miller to some friends and they had that reaction that I think a lot of people have had on first reactions, including I think Warren Beatty, where they couldn't understand the dialogue. Yeah. 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 But I mean, that's, I, I just remember distinctly second viewing on from McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's like, yeah, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. It's. Yeah, I, I understand it. I, I I get even to this day that it's like a, it's a little challenging for some people, but that it just though the films of that era are really kind of my wheelhouse, and like I just love like just the fact so many of them are just so like they subvert your expectations of whatever the kind of movie they were. That's clearly what directors at the time were were kind of doing. So anyway, yeah, I, I love it. Well, then next on your list is Dead Man. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that I think of that very much like McCabe and Mrs. Miller in that it's like on the surface, it's so unsatisfying. It's like such an unsatisfying hero's journey. Okay. Um, Again, like people have to see, but it's just like by the, the end and like, it's, you're just like, it shouldn't end like this. Like you want, you want your hero to have some, you know, uh, victory and there just isn't one. And, but yeah, it's like, so yeah, I do. And, and I think part of why this is more of a personal thing, but it was like that film came out like right before I got to LA. I mean, I'm sorry, right before I got to New York, um, I was in LA for like three years from like 97 to 2000. I don't remember exactly what year dead men came out, but it was right around then. And so like, I, the first, the, when I moved to New York, I, I subletted an apartment from another assistant editor who like went out to LA for like six months on a big movie and was like, Oh, I have this place you can stay in while you get settled. And, and she had worked with Jarmusch on several films, I think, including dead man. And so like, she had this like framed poster up in the, in the little dining nook in this small apartment in the village. So I was like looking at every, every, every day. And back then, 
this is like very specific to New York, but any of your New York listeners will understand there was this place called Kim's Video in New York. Kim, which, uh, Kim's Video lives. Right. You know, and it was like... The, beyond New York, beyond time and space. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, RIP. I mean, I to this day, I miss that place. And I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time in there. Um, and there were multiple... At the time, there were multiple locations. And so I would just like go over to Kim's Video. And I just... Because of her... I knew who Jim Jarmusch was and I had probably seen one or two of his movies in film school, but you know, didn't, he hadn't sparked anything for me at least at the time. So I went back and kind of like rewatched all of his films and then just got like a whole new appreciation for him. And, um, you know, so, so the, it's just a, and I actually think it's like such an interesting performance for Johnny Depp too. Like, you know, yeah. Like, um, I, I, I think, uh, some of his genre, like particularly ghost dog, I think in a genre standpoint, like they're like, it's weird because like Jarmusch is trying to do very little as possible, but like they're surprisingly dynamic, yeah. especially when he's doing genre. But have I ever told you my story of whenever, uh, um, I did an episode recently with my brother sure. and one of the points I realized my brother and I were diverging was we were in a video store and I, I hadn't seen any Jarmusch movies and I wasn't even sure I wanted to rent this, but we passed dead man on the video stores aisle and he looked at the cover, picked it up, um, kind of thought for a second and I wasn't sure if he was going to pick it or not. And my brother just looked, put it back down and with disgust on his face because goes, who would want to see a goddamn black and white Western? <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't there a lot of good black and white westerns? I'm just, yeah. I'm just right. gonna put Weren't that out they there. all that way up to a point? <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, some of your contemporaries I haven't seen. You, you, your last, your last category is contemporary westerns, and you had to start out with Pale Rider, speaking of Eastwood, which I thought Ted was gonna be. You wanted to do, would want to do that well, one. I, oh yeah, it's it, it would be interesting to revisit that. I don't think I. And you call it, you you calling it a Pale Rider contemporary? Well, that's oh. a loose term. I, I think in terms of like. You know, because there really was that period where they just like were not making many. And uh, I feel like I'd have, you know, I'd have to kind of look on IMDb to see exactly when certain movies were produced. But that that like that I remember was like, I don't think Eastwood had done much Westerns like for a while before that. I mean, he had done all the Dirty Harry stuff. And I'd have to go back and like look again. I, I could be like a little. Joe, a no, no, it was, it was definitely it was definitely uh, an oddball out of the nowhere. Oh, it's a comeback, yeah, a Western comeback. You know, it was one of those, yes. And so it felt I, that in my life, I think of it that way. It was like the first time where I was like, "Oh, like, like Eastwood made another Western, and it's really good." And you know, it probably has my favorite line of a movie. I've you know something I find a I find weird ways to quote this line so often in my life, which is nothing like a good piece of hickory. <laughs> Well, um, when you, I, I just thought with, using the word contemporary, you, you were referring to the time. The, the, oh, you mean modern? No, setting, no, the, no, I just meant like, like the nineteen oh six setting. Much or... more contemporary, like ah, uh, I got you. That, uh, I just didn't know how to like call them, but I did think like they're. It's almost what like latter day, you know, not in the classic time when everyone because on this list that is the oldest of yeah. them because the rest of them are i think the rest of them are odds uh the pell rider too is you know at the time i was you know i'm i'm following clint eastwood's career very closely i did my eighth grade term paper on oh wow I, 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 ding another story i've heard five times and i ended the whole thing going one day he'll be a big superstar so uh that's crazy that's what, man. but um he uh pell rider i was like oh this is kind of like high plains drifter meets shane and you yeah. know it was it just didn't seem to be, you know, I love High Plains Drifter. I think that's just, it's just, it's just a bizarre, so strange 
Uh, and I thought I just I, I thought Pale Rider was they used the title a little pale. <laughs> well, I'm having trouble thinking of the first uh, Western I saw in a theater that was a contemporary coming out the year like when I was watching movies. I mean, to be fair, we didn't go to the theater as much when I was a kid, but um, but like you said, I was raised in an era when westerns well, were coming out. We can out. do it down the road. We can do a Pale Rider uh, episode. Uh, 310 to Yuma, the remake, the James Mangold remake. Yeah, I, I think it's super solid. We, and most of the ones you're about to read, like these are the ones we really did kind of like, Potsy was like, you should rewatch all of these. And I was like, okay, cool. Okay. And I, actually, I shouldn't say that. He, he did not say that specifically. I realized, and now this is just as more of like, like an editor thing. It's like, I, I don't even know where I got this, but I, it's, I guess it's just, kind of how I'm built, but it's like, if I'm going to work on something that's like really new for me in terms of films, I've already like edited especially in terms of genre, I tend to do like a really deep dive kind of research deep dive in like, what do those films look like? What do they have in common? Where do the great ones try to diverge? you know, keeping in mind, like, I'm not the director, I'm the editor. So I'm one way or another, I'm kind of stuck with the dailies I'm given. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then the question is kind of like, well, what, what, what does one do with those elements when they get them? So, you know, I did a film a couple of years ago called We Summon the Darkness. It was like a kind of like an 80s horror thriller. And I mean, I like, I grew up on those movies. I mean, all the classic 80 kind of slasher thriller movies, like really grew up on them. So I, it was kind of like, in my DNA in a way that I hadn't realized. And when I went back and started like rewatching some of the classics, but then also watching some like, like more modern ones that were calling back those classics, you do realize like there is a bit of a vocab, a stylistic vocabulary that, that, that comes that are like endemic to that genre. So with the Western, it was, that was a big thing for me. And you know, not to get too granular, but I assume there are probably other like, you know, editors or up and coming editors who listen to your podcast. It's like, as editors, people often, I think the general public doesn't understand this. Like one of the questions I had, and it may sound funny, but I think you'll get it totally, is like, like a gunfight, right? Every Western is going to have a gunfight. I knew this one was no different. I read the script. I was like, okay, there's a couple of gunfights in this how do you cut a gunfight? Like, mm. that's not something I learned in film school. Well, I, what did I ask? I, that's interesting. I was going to, I, I, one of my questions to Shane, I go, I want to know how difficult it was to cut that gunfight in the trees at the end was the two guys, the very last one. I'm like, where, where is your point of gravity and, and your pacing and everything? I was like, man, that must have been really interesting for you to cut that. You just, I love that term you just used because you you just hit on the thing I was trying to figure out how to explain, like point of gravity, right? Like another way you could say that is how does point of view work in a shootout, right? Like we have our hero and we know like our film has absolutely been generally from his point of view. But one of the things this film does, and I think it's fine, is like we do occasionally change point of view we do go to the villain's point of view sometimes where like we are we as like we are privy to conversations that our heroes have no clue about and that's fine like i think i think films can absolutely like kind of go omniscient sometimes um but like 
in a shootout, it's kind of like, are you doing, you know, are you doing like a Tarantino thing where it's supposed to be like balletic and it's an appreciation of the, like the quote unquote art of violence and the, and the choreography. Whereas, and sometimes the answer is yes, of course. I mean, the Kill Bill movies are like great examples. Like, you know, uh, I, I, some of the great, I think some of the greatest like combat scenes, you know, ever are in the, some of those movies, but but in this, it was like, but this is much smaller. So I was watching a lot of the films, especially the ones on the current bit of list that you're reading now, mm-hmm. to like see how they did it. And sometimes it's as 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 the minutia gets down to like, are you seeing the person fire the gun or are you seeing the person get hit by that shot? Because, and of course, then of course, the third option is, well, you're seeing both, right? You need to see both. You need to see who fires the weapon and and where that bullet goes. But getting to one of the films that I'm sure it's on that list you're about to read, and we're going to talk about open range, is like, open range is a great example of like, that, that final shootout in the town was, that was a case where Potsy was like, watch this and then rewatch it because that's what we're going to try to do with the ending of old Henry. And he's like, that's the model. And he's like, we're not, we're not trying to copy it, but like, he's like, I love how, and the the word he used, or maybe the word I used for to him was um, the clumsiness of that final gun battle in open range. Okay. Okay. That's what it was. And we were like trying to come up with it. And I don't remember if he said it or I said it, but I was like, Oh yeah. Like it's clumsy. It's not, it feels very unchoreographed they miss like crazy no matter how trained no matter who henry actually is and no matter what his previous experience was 25 years ago just like the kevin costner character over range like hitting a moving target with a six shooter is extremely difficult like in real life it's extremely difficult it's a it's a short range weapon you know it is not marksmen are not using that kind of gun and so if you're like on the run and your opponent is on the run, like you are 95% of the time you are going to miss that person. So it's very much like I, and what I loved about both of those movies is there is this sense of like, I only have so many bullets. I really need to kind of like make sure that I have an angle on this person. And if I don't, how am I trying to draw them out? And of course there's that great bit in open range where he like his only shot is to shoot the guy in the toe because it's yeah, like all yeah. he can see the guy's like hiding in a doorway and like he has no other angle on him but by shooting the guy in the toe he kind of flushes him out and while we didn't do that gag specifically it it that was the feel of like you know so so that that's i guess a very long way to answer your question of like the final shootout in the trees of Henry I know Potsy was like we don't want it to be neat we don't want Henry just to be this like crazy dead eye where he's just, you know, riddling him with bullets because he can hit anything in front of him. It's like, nope, it's keep in mind, like, it's also probably been 25 years since he held that weapon. And like, yes, there's, of course, there's muscle memory, but like, you're also rusty. Like, you don't just hit everything you shoot at. And Well, it was, fr- it was a little frustrating when you know, the, uh, Trace Atkins, his brother-in-law says, Hellstorm is about to come or yeah. what you're about to, but it doesn't really happen at first. 
there's that little reprise. They go back in the habit and then come back out for the big well, shootout. Your, your first reaction whenever you were saying it was uh, to quote the Unforgiven thing about uh, the guns going off. Or well, you, and you start talking about the evolution of like the neatness of gunfire. Yeah, that, that whole, uh, ever since uh, Unforgiven and White Earp and uh, yeah. and a bunch of films with the uh, the guns not working, yeah. you got to get close. It's all been deglamorized uh, much from what we grew up on as kids. Of course. Uh, which is I've very been interesting to see that happen, but I also I almost wanted you guys I wanted you guys almost to steal a scene from Open Range because you know uh, and I'm glad you said the uh, dwarf uh, uh, again Tracy Atkins says long winded and I'm like I go this guy is just talking up a storm I mean and it's, it's who a great does moment. that a great in rea- <laughs> who does that in real life and I was hoping that Blake Nelson was just going to go up and shoot him right away just like like the way uh, Coster does. The gunslinger in open range. Remember that is just, that is a great. He dispatches him right away, and I think get get dwarf out of here. Just get just get him done. But I mean, understand you wanted to get the one on one in the tree sequence, but well, right. Uh, but I will say, like, and I I you know I'll try to keep this spoiler free for people that haven't seen. Oh it yeah, sorry about that. No, no, no. I'm saying I yeah. will, but like, but I will say like we do kind of do that moment if you remember with. Dwarf. I think you. Like, I, it's you kind of you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and true. I mean, it's like the the. All I'll say is the speed at which that moment happens is the giveaway, you know, of kind of what you're talking about, like the Costner moment of just like, like, I'm just going to shoot this guy dead in the middle of his speech, like, right. which you don't <laughs> often see. Like, of course, for, it, it, for what it's worth, I was telling Ted this earlier, I was still projecting to the theater on film and watched that open range trailer a bunch. And that thing is that scene, that moment is in the trailer. Oh, they don't is? show they don't show the obvious reaction, yeah. obviously. But that scene, that thing is shot is in the trailer. I was gonna say also, I just it also that you got that sequence in Wild a Bunch oh, where yeah. at the end where they're all four standing there and they just go ahead and haul off and shoot uh uh Mapachi or whatever it is. Yeah, name. yeah. And, and and then it's like it's almost like time just stands still and you think the they can almost get away. They can almost walk out, you know, yeah. and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, but yeah. There, and there's also that there's that release of just like get the hell on with it. Like <laughs> it's it, it just moves everything so fast. Um, do we want to? You get three more. Yeah, let's go, right, go, yeah. yeah, like let's go through them real fast. You had hostiles, the Scott oh, Cooper hostiles. I you, I said it right on the list. I adore that movie. Adore it. Like it's. I I also have a. Uh, I enjoy movies that aren't afraid of kind of exploring, you know, exploring like the darkness of it all. And mm-hmm. I mean, I love that. And I, and I don't want to like, I don't want to give away like all the secrets, but it's like, let's just say the tone. Well, you should watch the end of that movie and then watch the end of old Henry and you'll go, Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, you had the Coen brothers, true, uh, true grit, which the, I feel like the Coens are kind of the, the easiest modern people that have made the Westerns work more in, in the iconography of the, um, the West. Whether it's no country or not, or or true grit. Sure, sure. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Come to think of it, I absolutely should have put no country on the list of end of an era because it's like, I mean, that's. I mean, that is literally the whole like Tommy Lee Jones's last speech in that movie is about like yeah, like the world has changed. It's just not what it was, and and I don't know how to live in it anymore. The but. title incarnate, yeah. Yeah, there's have the um, after the the new version came out. I finally read the Charles Portis novel, which oh. is amazing. It was my first Charles Portis, and he is such a. Um, and it seems like he's he's come up more. And then finally, another movie so close to my heart: the assassination of Jesse James by oh. the coward Robert Ford. So good. I, I, want, I wish you could see the long version of that. I just, nope. I get the I'm, I'm fine with it. 
Wait, the the which one? The the, the of Jesse James. There's a longer version out there. I mean, he won't... I don't think it's out there though. Oh, no, it was. There's not out there. Yeah, it's I've read. Out. I've read. I, I don't know if it like actually exists in a viewable form, but um... speaking of your list, uh, so Unforgiven's not on there, right? Uh, what did you think? What's your take on Unforgiven? I listen. It's great. I mean, I I do love it. Um, I'll be totally honest. There's a weird. I mean, I really. I want to be like very clear. It's a great movie. I, it deserves all the accolades it gets. I do understand like I, I, all of that. I have a problem with it though. And I, I'm assuming with you, I love it too. Well, though. and I'll tell you where my, mine is. This is just one of those things that it's like hard for me to get over. I, I, if I'm, if I'm right, that movie came out, uh, when I was in film school. Um, again, I, it's hard to me, hard to remember exactly like what year, but, and I think if I'm right, it ended up being up against uh, Malcolm X for Best Picture. Oh, and okay. I, I thought and continue to think Malcolm X is like a masterpiece, like a, just an absolute cinematic, cinematic masterpiece that has never gotten its true due. I think. I think. I think. I don't know. I. I. I That's interesting. I, think, I mean, do the right thing. Obviously, has such a big spot. But I think some people like. I was. I was a Lake Hover to Malcolm X. Like. Uh, like. I. I think that's just. Those are the only two Spike Lee movies I own. That's interesting right. too, because considering the Spike and Clint's feuds they've had over the well, years. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, and and not for nothing. So like, I remember when I'd seen Unforgiven and I did like it, but when when Unforgiven won over Malcolm X, I mean. I was one of, I mean, again, I was also probably like 19 or 20, but I was like, this is bullshit. Like, no, no, I, I get it. Because it's funny. We're going to, I mean, I don't know. We're, we're going to get to Dances with Wolves a little, but Dances with Wolves reputation has been just completely sullied by beating Goodfellas. Yeah, and there's no real reason because Dances with Wolves. Or ordinary people beating Yeah, Richard exactly. It, oh, it's so many, it's, so many. And I think the modern day Oscars are a little worse once, once campaigning took over. I heard someone once describe that like a mediocre film winning a best picture thing is the worst thing that can happen to it for posterity. Like right. people will then suddenly forget it and be like, it beat a much better film. Like, sure. And I understand. I mean, listen, that's why, I mean, award, it, it, awards. It, it's, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the inherent problem with awards in general because you are often comparing apples and oranges. And like, right. so right, it's, right. it becomes a popularity contest. That's fine. Again, it That's takes fine. nothing away from the quality of Unforgiven. It's an amazing film. It deserves to kind of be in the path pantheon. But I've never, I fully admit, like I've never been able to kind of get over that like young, hot-headed reaction I had of Especially like- in college. Yeah, yeah. no, it's yeah. just going to happen. Well, my, my, situ my problem with it uh, is, well, it's not a, really a problem, just observation is, it, you know, it's just kind of like this uh, Clint doing this anti-violence thing, you know, all the way through the, you know, it's something about killing a man. He tells the kid and, and he, and he's given it up. He's got two kids can barely get on his horse, mm. blah, 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 just on and on and on. But then what do we have at the end? Clint coming out and doing his thing, you know, it almost, almost undercuts the whole, you know, first part of the film. Well, right. But I also, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. But I, I would, I would argue like, but it's that idea that the time in which they lived didn't allow that philosophy right. right it's like it's like you are living in a place where this the, 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 these are the consequences of these things and so it's like i mean he you know it comes down to do you leave the wanton you know murder of your oldest friend go unanswered and yeah at a certain point you know it's like i can't answer that question but it's like i think that's kind of it's like well 
it doesn't change the fact that he still is this guy, you know, who has had a, you know, a, a life of, you know, of dead bodies around him. So just very, very clever, I thought, because he, he was almost said he had, he had his cake and eat it too, because he had the Clint, you had the Clint Eastwood moment at the end. Yeah. But he had some different territory for Clint to play in, yeah. uh, as, as opposed to previous films like that. Is this now time to officially, completely, and utterly uh, hour in to go, or hour ten in to go to open range? Yeah, please, please, out? absolutely. Open range opened on August fifteenth, two thousand three. I was still working at the movie theater that same weekend. American Splendor, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and Freddy vs. Jason came. Out. <laughs> Um, one of the first things I noticed in the in the shots, Ted and I were talking about because he watched some of the deleted scenes um, from Costner's other movies. You know, he likes the big open vistas, the wide shots, the scenery. Um, there's a VFX supervisor credit on it, and you can see one of the first shots. It looks pretty much a sky replacement. He's, he does a lot of digital sky replacements. I've read I read some about that that the, like the clouds are all like kind of put in. I didn't, yeah. I can't say I did notice that. I also admit like in my rewatch, I had to do it on my laptop just cause it was on Amazon oh. prime. So like, I mean, it was fine. I could see it fine, but it's it, not the same. I probably would have noticed it better on a bigger screen. Yeah. There, there's one kind of big cloud shot earlier, but I mean, also like it's, there's those other movies. He probably had a long, long, he used to have bigger budgets and longer time to like get those naturally. But, um, uh, when did you, when did you first see it? Late, really late. I definitely did not see it when it came out. Um, I have a vague memory of just kind of shrugging it off as like. It took like, me a month before it came out before I saw it because the 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 weird thing is um, Postman had its reputation, which I rewatched Postman yesterday, and that's something to talk about. Yeah. Um, and then Dances with Wolves. The weirdness with Dances with Wolves was um, for the longest time the theatrical cut wasn't available. Yeah. They only had the extended version. So Costner was known for bloat. And yeah. I remember when I rewatched this, like I thought. I was kind of surprised it was over two hours because I remember it being leaner than I was I was expecting. Yeah, and I to the point. Yeah, I saw it in the theater, and I, you know, I saw go back to Dance with Wolves. Uh, you know, I know some people. I know now it can does it get dumped on sometimes now because like like the, like the way Forrest Gump gets dumped on. But I, no, I think I think if anything, going back to my Goodfellas point, it's been its reputation has been resuscitated. But, but I but saw for a while it was. I absolutely had loved it. I saw it three times in the theater, and I and I was sold on Costner as a director and what he did. Blah blah blah. I know there's got you know you know uh, uh, he's concerned about. Uh, the the, uh, the the Indians and ecological that maybe a, a Union soldier wouldn't have back then yeah, or something sure, like sure, that. Sure. I mean, sure, you know. But I just I just adore because I'm a sucker. I grew up. See, Kevin's like three years older than me, and I remember him when he went up to get his Oscar. He went by Richard Harris, and he goes, "That's King Arthur." He loved. He he grew up on the big epics like I did, and mm -hmm. he loves those big epics. So I was a sucker for this, and that and Postman's you know is another big epic. Mm -hmm. So I was ready for open range. It was fine, and I, I a good western, of course, you know, like we said with Paul Ryder, they were far and few between at the time. Yeah. So, and so I loved it when I saw it in the theater, and I enjoyed it again just watching it for this podcast. But I did notice it's a little bit. Well, I I might be getting in trouble by saying this. I thought it was funny. You almost it's a little bit on the nose as a western. It almost you could almost like push it a few more 
uh, like it's Gary Cooperisms. Well, or? it's just just all the tropes and all the all the things that all the accumulation of what westerns be prior to it. It's almost you know jammed into this thing in a way, and you can almost push it a few edges, uh, a few inches further, and it's going to be almost a caricature of a western in some ways. I, just, but it, it doesn't go that far. And, and you got Duvall anchoring it. You, of course, they got Robert Duvall doing his post lone. Um, Lonesome Dove character ever since Lonesome Dove. Well, well, per your Richard Harris point, I think one of the things that's really charming about the movie is, um, especially because Costner, even though his um, he's not he's his his run isn't as strong. He has like those three great runs from the '90s we were talking about earlier, but um, he's not top billing of this, and especially for the first half. But most of the movie, this movie's so reverential for a guy who wants who's like you know like sung on his own soundtrack for the Postman. Uh, <laughs> he's it's reverential. It's reverential of Robert Duvall. It wants Robert Duvall to be the star of the movie. Hundred percent. And and behold the acting prowess of Robert Duvall. And I know he like I, I heard like the studio wanted Coster's name on top billing and he, he fought he said, No, yeah. I want I want Duvall to be first. That's exactly what I was thinking. And Duvall like uh, had an accident where he broke some ribs I on set. I read that. I read that, which I was like, Can you imagine? I mean, he was old then. I mean, like yeah. you, a guy that age falling off a horse. It's like that's there was there was a period he was supposed to do uh, Gilliam's Don Quixote. Robert Duvall, I think, was yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. Speaking of horse accidents, <laughs> but um, speaking of post lonesome dove, um, I should ask um, Robert Duvall's accent. It's something over the years. Like Robert Duvall is technically from New York, isn't he? Like I know he lives in Virginia, or and he's lived on a farm, but. Him and Jeff Bridges are these people over the years who are just like the saliva's gotten thicker, <laughs> so. thicker and thicker. Well, you think about you know you, you think about the early Robert Duvall, and you think about in Godfather the way he is conversation, in that. And, and, the conver- or, and and he's I don't know you know it's it's I like, watched Network the other day, you know, a, a, an urban everyman yeah. with the, not with not much flavor in a way. I mean, which is it works to his favor, but once he hit Lonesome Dove. He had that, and, you know, and he doesn't Geronimo. He does an open range. He doesn't, and uh, but and uh, over the years, it's gotten thicker yeah, and thicker. Yeah. And what's his? What's what, is and, his... and he does that little, that little breath thing he does, and, it's, and, it, and a little hand gesture that it's, it's such a, it's such a natural. I love it. I mean, it no, it's a naturalistic it, but... gesture too. It's yeah. a nice gesture yeah. he always adds. Well, that to first, it, but... can I can I uh, can I admit something publicly that I've I've never told a lot of people, especially given sure. that we're talking about westerns. Go for it. I've never seen Lonesome Dove. Oh I'm, really? I've, I've never seen Lonesome and Dove. I mean, yeah. I just I, it comes up so often, and I hear it's like really good, like it's like worth the watch. I just I have never seen it. Well, I w- I want to read it, and like I don't know, it was only like a, I, I, not only have I not seen it, it took me like a, a, a I think just last year I realized that's the movie Bogdanovich was going to make with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart oh. that uh, Larry McMurdy got tired of him, him waiting around for the script and then wrote the novel. And, oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, well, I think you'll, I think you, I think you'll agree with me. Once you watch that, it's kind of ground zero for anything after that. He's kind of riffing off that character because he loved doing Lonesome Dove. But I have, I, have, I, I do tend to forget, and I just found the DVD. I'm going to watch it soon. Tender Mercies, which he got his Oscar oh, for. Right, and, I, I, I actually did watch that. And that might, I, I need to watch that again. See if he's doing some of that Western character they he did in the latter period. You know, I mean, what, what is? I don't. He, I, okay, he his character drinks in open range, but I mean, a big thing about Tender Mercies is like alcoholic trying to get not drink. Yeah, but. no, no, yeah. Well, there's, it was a big affair that in the open range they bring the bottle out when Moses comes back and they're all talking. Yeah. Um. So oh. so, so back to the movie, like Costner is it's not so much bloat because especially like I feel like the first 
half hour, maybe 45 minutes. I wouldn't call it a tight movie, but it's direct. It, it moves along. And then it seems like it starts taking its time mm -hmm. after a certain point, but not, not necessarily in a bad way. Like it just wants to hang out with its characters. Yeah. I think like, and I heard, you know, also in the run up to this, I like went back and like read some interviews and stuff. And I mean, he was pretty emphatic in a lot of the post, you know, release publicity that he, that like he wanted he he was very he was very defensive anytime an interview would like an interviewer would bring up like the word slow but he was like i wanted the beginning to be deliberate i wanted you to deliberately get to know these people and why they're doing what they're doing and what their motivations are you know before it becomes kind of plot driven of like well now this thing mm -hmm. happened and so we have to go there and like and you definitely feel that i mean i don't know if you noticed this but in in my rewatch I noticed, you know, there's a lot of fades to black, and I noticed a lot of fades. I didn't, I didn't pick up on the fades to black. Well, is that well, really? What I'm getting at is like, so, you know, now I understand that while yes, that can absolutely be uh, uh, an organic way to tell you that some time has passed, right? That we're like this, this moment is done, and now we're going to the next moment. Mm -hmm. But there's a few times where I kind of noticed, I'm like, oh, they happen very quickly, like right at the end of a sentence. And They're... I kind of know, or I suspect, of course, I don't know, but I suspect that it's like, oh, they cut something out there. So there's a, there's a, there's a, when Costner does his monologue, the, they go, they like, faded the stars, that strange cut there. There's a dissolve there and you and can see his talking. lips very moving, distinctly. He's moving. still continuing to talk. And I'm like, and I, and I, I was picking, I was trying to watch for edit points because I, we were, I knew we were going to talk to uh, two editors right. here. And I'm like, oh, that go, that's, would you leave? That's kind of a huge, uh, it, I don't know. I wouldn't say huge. It's one of those things you just hope people don't notice. No. And I think most don't like, and I just know right. in my own career, I like it's, you you ha you can only make regardless of the moment that we live in now with films being you know digital and very easy to rewind and and all that and pause it's it's something i tell directors i work with all the time you have to make your movie for one screening you cannot worry about what people may do rewatching it or pausing so if whatever the issue is works if you only see the movie once, that has to be the right answer because otherwise you will drive yourself crazy trying to fix things for the the possibility that somebody might go back and freeze on this and be like, oh, look, this this thing's wrong or whatever. Well, that's one of the biggest examples of that. And I got shot down because I, I, I even brought it up with City Lights at the end with the uh, at the end. He has the, he's holding the flower up by his face mm -hmm. uh, and talking to the girl. It's a really... The, the shots don't match, but it's one of the most classic scenes of all time. Oh, and uh, right, right, and and, 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 you, and you go, no, Ted, shut up, it works, it's great. Don't you don't worry about it, you know? Exactly, and I mean, it's like again, listen, like half the internet is bad continuity videos now, and it's just like <laughs> you know, for editors, that just makes you want to cry because you're like, my God, it's like basically everything I was ever taught, like these videos, like you know, uh, uh, uh invalidate and it's not true you know what i mean it's like like but th that's literally that it's the history of cinema i mean it's like you you can't have perfectly continuous edits unless you are shooting your film in perfect order right in, yeah. in scene continuity order and 
you're spending a lot of money to make sure those things don't happen. And that's just not how movies are made and it's not how they've ever been made. And you just, you can't, as an editor, I know Shane knows this. It's like, it's something you learn the first time you start cutting anything is just, oh, I, I can't get hung up on this. Like I, you do your best, you do your best to smooth it out and make it not draw your eye. But if, if the priority is, you know, is plot or character or performance or all the things that are more important than continuity, you have to go to the, you have to, you have to, you know, lean on, lean into those things. I, I've been known to say to a director, and I don't even believe this wholeheartedly, but I will glibly say this whenever the issue comes up, but uh, continuity is for hacks. Like, just if, don't worry about it. Which, again, I don't actually believe it, but like, it's more, I think those videos, if those comes, something like that comes up, the issue there isn't so much, oh, they noticed that it didn't match. The issue more is that, it's, to me, it's twofold. Either it bumps so badly that someone noticed. The the bumps are what you really got to look out sure. for. So if, so if it takes someone out of it, then, oh, yeah, sure. No, that's I agree. Not. Then you should try to fix it, yes. But but more importantly, like, you did it for a reason. You, you've seen it more than anybody else. You know it, it's, it doesn't match, of course, but you left it in there because you thought no one's going to care because people are going to be going with the emotion or the scene or what's, what's going to be happening. And if they figure it out, you're like, oh no, the scene didn't work as best as I as good well as I thought it did. Yeah, I mean, I, I will always remember my I, I when I was young and coming up, it's like I I had I had this amazing opportunity to you know kind of be an intern on this film with uh, uh, Don Cambern and Billy Weber. Um, you work with Billy? Well, I mean, that's a stretch. I did not work with Billy. I was in okay. the edit room on a movie he was editing and. I mean, okay. I knew him. I, I spent a summer with him, but it was like, but you know, he was busy doing his thing. What was the movie? Uh, it's called Little Giants. Okay, okay. Um, and but I remember Don very specifically. Um, for those of sorry, I realize like I shouldn't just be like name dropping without a reference. Like, so we're we're talking about two like very like like legendary editors. Um, Don Cameron, like one of his first features he ever cut was Easy Rider. So oh, it's wow. like the guys. I mean, we're talking about legit legit you know devises a completely new cinematic transition yeah 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 so um i remember him saying you know at one point like well uh uh as an editor you get you get all the blame and none of the credit and i think that was probably more true in his day only because like you know, being a film editor was so specific. There were so, relatively speaking, so few people doing it. It was widely understood. Like you had, you truly had to have like a level of expertise to have that job. It was very hard to break into. You had to climb a very long ladder. Nowadays, obviously it's a little different. There's a million ways to become an editor, maybe not like doing big films, but still. So, you know, if anything, I think it's like, I'm glad like, you know, that we don't, it's still always true that we don't ever get any of the credit. And that unfortunately is just the reality of the job. Cause people, most people have no idea what we do um, or the extent of what we do. Uh, but like I said, that's my thing about like, for instance, like these YouTube videos about continuity, it's like, even if they're not saying it, the implication is like, look how badly this was edited. And to your point, Shane, it's like, I guarantee you that the person that that bothers most is the original editor who probably worked their ass off to try to prevent that thing from happening. And it was probably happened because of either like shoddy production 
or an actor not doing what the actor was supposed to do, whether it was like hitting their mark or picking their cigarette up with the wrong hand or whatever, or a like a like a latter day cut, so to speak, meaning something that in the edit room they're like, oh, you know what, this has to come out. And there might have been a really good reason why this has to come right. out, but by taking that thing out, you've now created a continuity problem with whatever came before it and whatever came after it. Right. And that happens all the time and it's unavoidable, but I just had it happen literally last week where like we're about to lock this film, but a a thing got raised in a test screening and we're like, oh crap, yes, that is confusing. None of us caught that that line makes makes something confusing. So it was like, well, we know the line has to come out, but just because of how the scene was shot, I was like, ugh, I I have to like, the the actor who says the line moves on it. So by taking the line out, the actor now jumps from this one body position to a neck to a different body position. And even though I had lots of coverage of it, the move is always on that line. So it suddenly, I, I like, after spending an hour on it, I was like, well, I've done it the best I can but no matter what, it's going to be a bit of a bumpy cut. And, and I'm just going to have to take the hit. The worst you is when you have to do those cuts at the last, the last minute. Those are the ones where you're like, all right, we made this decision. Like, we hope it works. And then you live with it. Yeah. And I, like, I told the, the joke I make with directors sometimes is like, I've been doing this long enough now that I allow, I allow myself one bad cut in each movie without like obsessing about it right right knowing that's like hey if there's what 1500 to 2000 edits in a you know in a dialogue driven film like if i have one like bad cut that i will always see like that's pretty good like i i did a you know i can i should be able to live with that if it's more than one i start to get real like antsy and try to do whatever i can to try to fix it because yeah i mean listen we have at a certain point you're like that's that's the only reflection of my work on this movie is like that, that you don't notice this stuff. And yeah, I mean, I, I, part of me is like, um, um, you know, Tarkovsky made titled his book sculpting in time. So it's, you know, the, the time, like time, if everything feels real time, then sure. Maybe that's wrong, but movies manipulate time all the time. Right. So it's just like, I can argue like, who cares? I don't know. Again, it's really if it's if it bumps or anything else. Yeah, I did want I did want to say uh, on one of these episodes I interviewed uh, a friend Thomas Vingris, and he had a variation on your phrase of where we we always get blamed, and I, I found it more profound and 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 kind of true in my experience because when I have gotten credit for something, there's a majority of the time I'm like, I don't deserve the credit for that. Right. Like that scene was shot well, right. or that scene was just acted so well, yeah. and you just presented it. Yeah. And at the same time, then you get the blame on things you don't deserve. Uh, I mean, yes, I've, I've, it, you know, it's happened in every editor's career, but I've, I can think of a couple reviews I've read over the years of films I worked on where like, like, thank God it's never, they've never like called me out by name. Thank God. But like, but they've said like, oh, the, this thing, you know, they've mentioned a problem with the editing or the pacing. And of course you're always like, but like that, was necessitate the decision to do it that way was necessitated by these other forces, right? And I, I do I, I do take cold comfort in the fact that a lot of film critics, I, I'm shocked at how well little they under like um their framing of it is often like um pace seems to mean go fast. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's 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 or or slow and unengaged kind of uh, blend in. So like I don't take it to heart too much. But 
yeah, it's um, it, it is it is good advice to just not read your own reviews. Like you know, I'm I, I I'm down to the point now where I generally just read like the headlines to just find out like did they like did Variety like it? Did it not like it? Did you know? Because I'd like to know that. I just want to know what the general reception is. Um, and if someone says like, oh my god, there's this amazing review and such and such, like I'll read it, but I I don't troll the internet anymore like I did when I was starting out on the rare occasions where a film I cut was getting those reviews just because at that point, you know, to be honest, you're like, Oh my God, it's the first time something I've worked on is getting reviewed by variety. And like, that's an amazing, you know, for those of us who make movies, you're like, it's a big deal when that happens the first time, like you, you kind of know like, Oh, that's cool. I've, I've done something that is being looked at by like t- actual taste makers. And I think for, you know, I, I, I am, it's a more bigger deal for me because then it's like, uh, I get my next job off momentum. So if like this movie's liked, then yeah, then, then yeah, my, my name, my name's going to be on somebody's eyes for a little bit. Um, yeah. Some, I mean that sometimes that's true. Although I've also, sometimes it's not, I mean, it's like sometimes the films can just go off and have a life and it's like, you know, that whole thing of like, if I don't necessarily believe this, but if it's like, if great editing is invisible editing, like then you yourself as the editor are sometimes just kind of invisible and yeah, like, that's very true. you know, it's like, Oh, it's all about the cinematography. And you're like, cause you can measure that, right. You can, you can objectively say there are gorgeous, there are gorgeous shots in this movie, but again, no one really understands what we do. And so it's very hard to pinpoint like, Oh my gosh, that's so well cut. Like you and I can do that. And other editors can do that. And even directors, can watch something and be like, man, that was really well cut. And you hope they notice, but journalists don't really know what well cut means. And like, you know, what really gets to me, it's not the journalists or the critics, it's producers. Well, there, when producers don't understand what went into editing, that's the one that always kind of, uh, makes my blood boil a little. Well, it's, it can be real disheartening because they're often the ones like hiring you or at least getting you into the room. And it's like, right. So if they don't get it, like, uh, you're like, I feel or like even sh- pre-COVID sharing an office with you. And you're just like, why do you think we took so long to do this? <laughs> what do you think we've been doing? Yeah. <sighs> I'll, just, I'll just add real quick. I'm like, I can't okay. tell you how many times I've said the words, what do you think we've been doing? <laughs> oh, oh, laughter dissolves into tears. Have you ever had to uh, edit uh, an actor-director who was in their own movie? Actually, many times. Like, I shouldn't say many, several times. um, To the point where it became, like, I was being told, like, by my agent that, like, uh, they were getting calls about that, right? Like, It became an identity point, a hiring point? Yeah, I mean, even if it wasn't, I mean, in several cases, I didn't end up doing those movies, but, like... And that's that's cool. I mean, my very first film that I edited on my own was uh, an Ed Burns film called The Groomsman. So you know, Eddie acts and all his all his stuff. I saw that on your IMDb, and I had to ask about um, it. And it was an amazing first experience. I'm 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 incredibly grateful for that that experience because uh, if you know anything about Ed Burns, like I mean, he's just he's just a very um, I mean, he's just a friendly guy. And he doesn't buy into his own celebrity 
like in yeah. any way that I saw. Um, I mean, he's he he says it all the time, but he's like, I'm just a guy from Long Island. And you're like, right. Like, and that is how when you're with him, that is how he comes across. So he like it literally like on the like first day of production, I remember him calling me and saying, you know, I got in the first day of dailies. He was like, how do they look? How do they look? And I was like, looks good, man. Like, you know, so, I mean, it's only day one, but like, it looks, everything looks fine. And I remember him saying, listen, you know, just so you know, cause he often works with a lot of the same people, like from project to project, project, he's had the same DP, like his entire kind of career. So he's like, just so you know, the way I work, like, because I'm like directing and acting, it's very hard for me to like judge my own performance. So on set, I've got like my producer, Aaron, who is like my trusted, you know, my conciliary who will tell me if like we need to go again or, and he's like, and I also have my DP. He's like, but I'm really looking to you to be that third voice. So like I, he's like, so I, I do not need you to be deferential. Like I need you to be honest. So he's like, if there's like any performance issues and he's like, you know, especially my own, like I please chime in and let me know because I want to know while there's time for me to adjust. And that was like, it was a really, it was a really like helpful lesson in, you know, the, the, the modesty is the wrong word, but like, I understand it's like, right. He knows his face is going to be first on the poster. So, you know, he does want to protect his own performance. And now, obviously, I've, I I mean, I came to understand very quickly in my career that that's a big part of an editor's job is to, um, is to protect, especially a good performance. Sometimes it can be to fix a bad performance, but if someone's really giving, if you're getting the kind of dailies where you're like, holy crap, this person is like really bringing it, then I do, I do, I very very actively feel that sense of like, I'm, I'm responsible for making sure this amazing work ends up in the final movie. And sometimes the way to do that is to like, be really like critical and go like, is this moment up to snuff of what they've been giving me before? Or, you know, is this take better? So Eddie really helped me like get into that. And then I've subsequently done a couple of others. Most recently, a couple of years ago, this film Critical Thinking, that was John Leguizamo's directorial debut. And amazingly, the first day I sat down with John, he said the exact same thing um, in not in, you know, slightly different words. But he was like, look, man, like, don't, you know, don't be precious about my performance. Like, I, I need you to be honest. I because he was also directing himself. And um, and by that point, I like it didn't you know, on my first film with Eddie, there was kind of this like, uh, okay, I like, I feel awkward being the one to tell you if I think your acting is not great. By the time I got to John, I felt way more confident about that and was like, thank you for saying that. No problem. Like I, I will, I will absolutely, you know, cause I understood at that point, like it is kind of a, it's an important part of the job and like, you can't, you can't get wrapped up in, this person's like celebrity or anything like that. It's like, they're trying to make a good movie and you just need to help them. Well, without naming any names, have you had any experiences where someone said that, but you really got the clue certain point that that wasn't hundred percent the case where like, don't sugarcoat it, but by the way, sugarcoat it. That's a, <laughs> okay. So t- uh, two, two parts of that answer. And yeah, I definitely won't name any, uh, 
it, it was not a director, meaning it was not an actor director, but it was a filmmaker who had someone very close to him in the movie. And I'll, I'm going to just leave it super vague as that, but like someone that they, you know, cared about in a certain way was, was in the cast. And they did tell me that initially. And then that person was really problematic. Um, their performance was really pro problematic. And so we started trimming back on lines and I, all I can say is a, I guess it, this was never explicitly said to me, but I definitely felt it. Apparently I crossed a red line of how much of the part I was cutting out. And so then it, no, I mean, I don't want to make it, it wasn't like I got fired or that they like came in screaming, but it suddenly the tone changed. and was like, how did you find out? Well, because literally the director was kind of like, it went from, yeah, like do your thing, man. Like, like, that's that's you know that's part of the job i get it and if something's not good then work around it or if you have to cut it out or blah 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 but then at a certain point weeks later it was like hey like i noticed you cut another line from so-and-so's part like i'm just curious why and i was like well because you know it wasn't good or whatever i don't it's hard to remember back the specifics but i remember i was like it would just work better if I pull this line out. It doesn't change the story and it keeps this person from having like a very like awkward moment where you can see the, the actor like trying to remember their lines and like not really being in the, you know, in the moment. And, and I said that and, it, and then the reaction was kind of like, um, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's, let's put it back in though and see. And, and when that happened a few times, it became clear that the director had heard that this person wasn't happy having all their lines cut out. Okay. And it was like, uh, uh, again, so that it was never explicitly said to me, but it, it, at a certain point you start to like, you get it and you're like, okay. So, so that was one occasion. The other time, again, it's not, it was not a, it was not an actor director. It was a writer director. And I've worked with a lot of writer directors. And that I've worked can with a few writer directors too. Yeah. Be tricky because yeah. they are the person that like birthed the idea usually. And, you know, and I get it. And I actually think I do pretty well with these people because I've had a lot of experience with it. Um, but, you know, it's very hard for them to, no matter what they tell you, and they always tell you, oh, I'm not precious. Like, I want the best movie. I mean, they always say the same thing. And, and some of them truly do mean it and are great about it. Then every, you know, occasionally a lot of them want to mean it too. I know, I know, but but and I get this. It's like I I really do understand how hard it must be for a person like that, a filmmaker like that, you know, especially if they're like, like I started writing this like twelve years ago, and yeah. I've done two movies. Like you know, this is the movie I couldn't get made, or like you know, we were about to go two different times with two different casts and then things fell apart. And like, now I finally made the movie and you're telling this me, has been in my head for decades. Yeah. Right. And, and especially if it's like, it's put it this way, this never usually happens with lines. It's usually that point uh, when, you know, I kind of call it the come to Jesus moment where I like, usually we're like pretty well into the director's cut. We've, we've screened the movie a bunch of times and, you know, and I'll like turn around in my chair and kind of look at them and go, so I have a suggestion. I don't think you're going to like it. And they go, I said, so I just want to like, I want you to like be prepared. And they go, oh, okay, okay, what? And I go, 
I think the movie is better if we like take out this scene, like, and here's why. And I always make sure to like immediately go into why I go, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's saw so, it not only does it solve this problem, but now these two things are closer to each other. And mm-hmm. so now this makes a lot more sense why this thing happened. But this thing in the middle is like the term I often use is like, it's an off ramp. We were on the highway, but we suddenly exited. I've heard others use and that term. And, 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 and it term, now yeah. takes us a minute to get back on the highway. And why do that? Like, yes, it's- I've a, heard that metaphor exactly used before. I don't know who originated me it. Me neither, me neither. And I, I don't even know like where I've heard it. If, you know, I'm sure someone I've worked with, but but it's a very, it's very apt. It's like, you're going 70 on the freeway. Suddenly you slow down to 40 and now you've, you know, now we're dealing like, now we have to go pee. And it's like, but now you have to get back on the, you know, the on-ramp just to get back onto the freeway to get where you're going. And I mean, it, it is a pretty apt metaphor. So I, I, and I will often say like, and to be clear, I love the scene. The scene works great. It's not right. because it's not good. It's, but it is not good for the movie. Those can be, I've literally had to have that conversation in I think probably every film I've ever cut, maybe, maybe with the exception of old Henry. And we can, <laughs> wow. Well, only because it was, that script was just airtight. Like there, was, there was no, there was almost nothing left on the cutting room floor of that film just because the script was so, you could tell how much work he had done on this script. I mean, he, he even said, he goes endless drafts. Like he said, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many drafts it's, it's many, many dozens and, How long had he been holding on to this for a while? You know, that's a good question. I never thought to ask him that. Um, like, when did he first kind of birth it? So I, I, I don't know that it was something he's like been, you know, trying to bring to the screen for like decades. I just think he just knew that in order to make this film with the, the budget he was likely to get, which was very small, you know, and like he, he even said to me, he's like, I'm a Nashville guy. Like I knew I didn't have like all the, I wasn't going to be able to afford myself all the tools and opportunities that like a filmmaker from like LA or something might be able to have. Like we had to, sure. I knew we were going to do it here and it was going to be small. And if I got a big name actor in this part, it was, I was going to be lucky. So he's like, I kind of knew like I needed, I just needed the script firing on all cylinders. Um, and, and and certainly when I by the time it got to me, I was just like, damn, like this thing is crazy. I mean, that's why I just I immediately called my agent was like, I whatever it takes, I want to do this movie because it's it's just so tight. Usually Walmart when I'm reading damned. Scripts, well, usually when I'm reading scripts for an interview, I'm like I'm making marks on places where like this is probably going to be an issue in the cutting room. And I want to bring that up with a director in an interview of like, hey, I'm curious, like in my experience, this thing that happens in your script is often something we decide we want to cut later. Like, have you explored that? And, you know, I try to, I try to weigh like how difficult is this going to be down the line anyway. So that, and that didn't happen with old Henry, but on, on one occasion I did have a young writer director. Um, and all I'll say, you know, be, uh, all I'll say is that I was the second editor brought on to that, this particular film. And part of why the first editor left was because that editor could not convince this person to like make certain changes to the film. And the editor was just like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Like he, he, you know, that's what I was kind of told privately. And Mm. I knew the other editor and they were like, I, you, you might be better suited 
to this like job of like, you know, you're, you're really good with people that way. And I've kind of hit the end of my patience. And I was like, okay. So, and I, so I knew, I knew they, I was going into They say a new set of eyes, but really they're asking for a different way of saying something, reframing of, uh, sometimes some, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. Um, like I said, in this case, it really was like the original editor was not let go. They left and okay. asked me if I would be willing to step in. And it was like, sure. At the time it was a great opportunity for me. So I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, of course. So in my head, I'm like, I'm going to make this work like no matter what, cause this is a good credit for me. And, and for a while it was, it went very smoothly, but then at a certain point I started to hit the same wall that the original editor was facing, which is like the, the writer director just was like, yeah, but like I'd, I'd give this well-reasoned impassioned argument about why this thing should come out and it will make it so much better and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, I, you know, when the response is like, yeah, I hear you, but I don't know. I like it. I think eh, I don't want to lose it. And you're like, uh, like you didn't that, refute that particular argument. phrase. Yeah. It, like it ends up know. becoming like, because I said so. And you're like, yeah, exactly. And once you hit that and, and not for nothing, like that film suffered greatly because of that problem like like didn't didn't come out the way it should have did not get the reviews it should have like it's you know there was a way better movie there and it that just never got made and yeah and it's it was too bad because it, it really was like it was I, I really liked that film um and not for nothing like that 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 film got taken away from that person like at a certain point higher up stepped in and was like we just like we can't do this anymore and you're no longer welcome in the cutting room and we're just going to finish it. So, Jeez. I mean, which is unfortunate. It was, it was really like a, you know, an unforced error, I guess you'd call it. Like it's, um, it was, it was an error of youth. So, you know, I under, you know, I under, I, on some level, I understand but on the other level, you, you, you're like, you have all these experienced people telling you that you might be shooting yourself in the foot and yet you're just still loading the gun and, you know, yeah. okay. And you didn't know that the opportunity was when it was gone. I think the main reason I was asking about the the um, actor aspect is like the thing about Costner, especially for someone that got all these accusations of having a big ego with his movies and being involved with a lot of the parts. There doesn't seem like a lot, I don't know, especially not in open range, being Duvall's movie, like it's not a lot of vanity in, in it. Like, I think you can maybe say there's some parts in Postman, uh, more in Postman, a little in Dances of Wolves, but in open range, not really. Like there doesn't seem like some vanity around the performance. I I agree with you totally. It's It, it really is a part of why I like the movie so much. And I think also a, a thing we haven't really touched on yet is, and I know Costner has said this, but like apparently Duvall, I mean, you know, he's Duvall. So like he, he was ad-libbing a lot of stuff in that movie and you can feel it. And I don't mean it in a bad way. Like, I just mean like there's, there's, there's interchanges between them that just feel so like, you're like, how would you even write that? And you're like, well, they didn't. I'm sure the, the writing was more general about this person is trying to get this other person to say this thing. And like, you know, apparently Duvall was just like real keen on like, no, I want to like, I want to live in these scenes especially with Costner and like, you know, um, I, I guess I didn't pick up on the ad libs, but it makes sense. Everything you're saying makes, sense. I mean, ad, ad libs is a big part of like 
invisibly putting that in into a, a, a scripted story is part of is is the sweet spot too so that's true and and the great you know really good ad-libbing actors again especially somebody like you know i mean they it's it's you know i say it's a skill like any other the more you do it the better you get at it and somebody like yeah. Duvall is prop. I, I've never worked on anything he's worked on, but I can only assume he's probably just a master of it, of like knowing what the script says and what the goal of the scene is, and then putting it into his own language so that you don't go off the rails. It's like the scene still does hits the same beats. Um, I've seen younger actors do it who are really good at it. I, I, I'll say just because I like John Leguizamo, is, he's a master at it a master of just like taking whatever was written down, putting his own spin on the line and it achieves the exact same thing. And you're like, wow, that's way better. Like, I guess, I mean, I've had friends work with uh, actor directors. I haven't, I, I came close a few times and it just seems like it'd be hard. I, I, I was scared of doing it. <laughs> I, I, there's no question. It can have its pitfalls. Um, there were uh, right before COVID there was like a big one where I was in the running for it and I didn't get it and it was fine. I never even like met on it. But when I heard who it was, I, I went, hmm. Did you dodge a bullet? Yeah, it was just like, just because of what I knew about this person or which again, could be complete untrue, you know, completely untrue. But certainly there was a bit of a reputation that came attached to this particular person. And I just thought I could see being in an edit room if that's true, it could be a nightmare job because I could see it being the kind of thing where I'm constantly trying to break through like the ego. And, you know, so like when it didn't happen, I wasn't like super upset. I was like, that's probably may have dodged a bullet on that one. Um, Ted, you, one of the things we talked about before this was um, cause I mean, open it's, it's weird with how like, these, these those three are it. Kevin Costner's first movie was a, a Oscar winning movie. And then he's done two since then. One was a very, I don't know. When I rewatched it, I was on the fence between whether it's deserving of his reputation or not. You mean I the think postman? He, yeah. Um, Ted, I think you've been a little more forgiving on the postman. Yeah, I was, I, again, going back to how, what Kevin grew up on and, and liked and his chance of directing, I thought, I think I, I was much more uh, apologetic, more forgiving when I watched in the theater. And I thought I liked, I liked the, the bigness of it going for The bigness is I a mean, big part. And, you know, and, you know, it's a big swing. I mean, he didn't hit the ball maybe all the whole time. But. Well, the, well, the whole movie, the, the thing that's great about it is that it is trying to do a post-apocalyptic story that's wholly uncynical. The pro- <laughs> but the, okay. but yeah. the problems is, 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 is um, when you do a future story, you're beholden to to one way or another. You're beholden to what you got right and what you didn't, and what you get, if you what you got wrong is really takes you out. So <laughs> just the premise itself is kind of hard to buy now. Um, but I, I mean, but at the same time, it's big filmmaking and Dances with Wolves. Oh, how, I mean, how, do you have any history with Dances with Wolves that you remember besides the being mad at like um. I only, I mean, not, not, not really only that. I mean, I do remember loving it when it came out. I think I'm pretty sure that's one of those, like I saw it a couple of times in the theater, like, um, 
you know, so beyond that, no, I mean, that's, that's kind of all I can say about it is, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen it, gosh, come to think of it, I haven't seen it in a long time. I mean, maybe, maybe 20 years. It's on Netflix right now, but before I watched it, I hadn't seen it in probably maybe 25, 30 years. Huh. Um, and uh, one of my former guests and uh, friend, AJ Edwards, uh, he, he, whenever the theatrical cut came out, he very, I had to text him to remind me exactly what, but he has very distinct feelings. Like he does not like the extended cut because in the theatrical cut, when he arrived to the base, they never explain exactly what happened. And in the extended cut, they do. Yeah. And he's just, he hates the extended cut for that. <laughs> but I, the thing that struck me rewatching it is the first 20 minutes, especially, is really messy and weird in a good way. Huh. Like, you know, he try, like it opens with his foot, him, them trying to remove his foot. He then tries to commit suicide on the on the battlefield, gets commended for it. Then he go when he gets to outpost, there's this captain he talks to who um, speaks in this weird faux Shakespearean patois, <laughs> and then pees in front of him. And then as at minute Costner walks out the door, kills himself in the window in front of Costner. All this happens in like the first 20, 25 minutes. I can legitimately say I the only part of that that I recall is like the urination. I kind of do remember that being like, oh, you don't see that in movies very often. But, but. And, the, and there's and, the, and as big and as much of um, we've talked also about the score, too, as being uh, um, John Barry. You know, his kind of late area bigness. His latter John Barry, which is more lethargic and big and and and. Uh, uh, not not the the tightness of the you know the the, the that John Barry's jazz. Well, he's roots. he's he's going on the bigness and like the shootings there, but there's also a lot of like first time director with a time and money, but first time director just basic geography issue sometimes here and there. Right, 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 right. For someone who won best director on his first thing, you're just, there's certain. It, but the thing, the messiness is what makes it work too. Like I I and I, me- I remembered it ending in a giant battle and it totally doesn't. <laughs> talking about dan- you talking about dances? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think you know the thing. I think the magic of dances too. Like you said, you even uh, you said you went saw it a couple of times. I saw it three times. Like I said, I mentioned earlier, where it's one of those. I think the, the magic of a, a a great epic, a big big film, it has all these little moments right. that you want to go come you 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 just love so much and you want to come back and see those little moments. It gets the intimate it, details right. Yeah, you know, and so uh and they they stick out. Not the bigness of it or the big scenes. It's just these little moments. And I guess that maybe it's just the fact that it's in this big film. That's why, you know, I think of Lawrence Arabia, uh Reds, uh mm. all these films that have these just these little moments that you want to revisit again in, a, in this big canvas. Well, I think the other thing that struck out about me was um, um, from our um, uh, Glenn Frankel episode where we were talking about his High Noon book and, or not, I mean, excuse me, his Searchers book. I was wondering if it was the same story from the Searchers that they were basing some of the uh, um, Mary McDonald stuff and Dances with Wolves on. Oh, that's mm. interesting. Yeah, well, I, oh, I, I, def, I remember that from Dances. Like, I feel like it's a pretty, like, direct nod Oh yeah, Just to the, the Natalie Wood like bit. The reoccurring thing with Costner is that, and it goes to what you were talking about, Jamie, earlier, when you're trying to learn the grammar of a Western or just the history of a Western, is Costner is very beholden to it. Like we is we very what? Sorry, beholden. Oh yes, yes. He's he's like everything is. Uh, well, the newest one with Diane Lane. Uh, 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 let let him go. Uh, I saw which I saw. I haven't seen. I mean, either. he. 
Oh, it's I I just love I adore it, and it, it and he he's, it's 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 all because of his Western gravitas that he has. Mm. He plays an ex range he plays an ex uh, ranger. Oh that. wow! And it's it, it's set in the early sixties, late fifties, okay. early sixties. Okay, but he's got that. He's you know he's like he's bringing the old West with him, and of course also he's playing uh, with Diane Lane and. Well, you and you and I also had this argument a few times. Um, is and I, I think you have the better argument here. But is Costner's persona from when he first came on the scene to now? I especially back in the day, I, and I mainly introduced to Field of Dreams. I like to think that, especially the late eighties, early nineties, he was our Jimmy Stewart, and Ted likes to think he's our Gary Cooper. I, I think he's got. I think he's more Gary Cooper ish than Jimmy Stewart ish. And I, I, I get your argument. I just think there's something. I, I think the, 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 it's a wonderful life parallel to, to Field of Dreams is more strongly for me. That's true, but that, that's really interesting. It's really I I may I'm sorry, apologize. I may have to side with Ted a little more because I see I agree that the movie definitely has you know like very strong overtones of like it's a wonderful life, but the way Costner inhabits that role, if we're going to make the comparison, I think you're right. Like you know the. I, it's just hard for me to think of Kevin Costner as a Jimmy Stewart type, and yet I do understand why he's so often compared to Gary Cooper. I can I can concede this argument. Ted's point was that he that Tom Hanks is our Jimmy Stewart, which yeah. for sure, and it doesn't mean there can't be more than one. But no, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's well, like, it also I think it, maybe it also applies into the fact that uh, Cooper and Costner represent a certain a certain uh, 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 symbolic uh, aspect of America, uh, yeah. the history of the cowboy, the Western and the, and the, and the, I know, you know, I know Clint Eastwood, they always said Clint Eastwood was from the Gary Cooper school too, but there's something about, uh, there's more American pie in Cooper and Costner than there is in Eastwood, you know? I think, uh, I think one of the thing with the Costner movies that is kind of interesting is it feels like he's been, he's talking to the movies he's loved for most of yep. his life. And there's some pretty big, Big star movies, big oh, Hollywood yeah. Western movies. You had your big thing about his runs. You wanted to go on. Oh no, no! I just, I just noticed that he. I, I was trying to see how he, he, you know, you get a chance to direct, and it, or you're in the director's. What do they call it? The, the when you get in trouble. The, oh, the director's, director's jail. jail. Uh, yeah, director's jail. But. Uh, you know, off of, you know, he first, I mean, that incredible run he first has with Untouchables, No Way Out, Bull Durham, and Field of Dreams, all four back to back. I mean, so that, you know, and then he had a couple of ones that went on the radar. That's what got him dancing with wolves, probably. And then he comes back roaring again with Robin Hood, JFK, The Bodyguard, A Perfect World, and White Earp all back to back. I know White Earp didn't do what it was supposed to do, but that's a pretty good run. It, and that's, and then, it's a, that's an underrated movie. There's like, there's some really cool stuff in that film. Well, I could go off on that. I, I would love to do a, an episode where we do t- uh, uh, Tombstone versus White. Oh my God! Yeah, hundred percent. Everybody, everybody loves Tombstone, and everybody goes off about Val Kilmer. And I'm just get, and, and I'm just like, come on, guys! Have you seen White Earp? Have you seen Dennis Quaid? Well, they're Doc both. Holiday? I mean, it's that's why yeah. I, I do like them both quite a bit. They have, there's different things I like about each one, but um, right. But they put more people go for the. I tombstone. know you're right. You're right. Yeah. And then he get, and then he has like uh, right before it's a postman he does Tin Cup, uh, of course Waterworld's in there though. Well, uh, <laughs> Waterworld, I'm, I mean that that was the movie I wish I had watched more than with his buddy Kevin Reynolds who did you know he did and uh, the Joss Whedon script doctoring. Yeah, and then after the postman, he, it's like ugh. 
things that didn't really do well. I'm, well, that, that's the thing is like those, that's the period where I kind of want to be like defending him a little. Well, you know, message in a bottle, love of the game, play for the, the love bone. of the game in particular. The it's an underrated Sam Raimi movie that. And it's went, not good. It's not yeah. good. No, every, and everybody was want Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, another baseball film. Right. It's Sam Raimi directing, right, right, right. and right. we go, oh. It's not working. It, the baseball uh, scenes in those movie really work. Uh, no, uh, and I, I love you, Sam. Don't if you hear this, but um, Thirteen Days, uh, The Road to Graceland, Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, Dragonfly. Well, I can't remember what. Dragonfly. I remember Dragonfly. But then he did, and then out of that, out of that run, it comes Open Range. Well, so the ones you were after was like Upside of Anger and. Uh, remember, has it the Guardian, Mister Brooks? Mister Brooks is actually not that bad. No, yeah, I just I just saw that in the last like year during the pandemic. It was on, and I rewatched it, and I was like. This is real. This, this is, is pretty good. Like this is better than it has any right to be. Yeah, yeah. I actually remember enjoying Swing Vault, uh, but it has some. It's, I think it's more for uh, specific yeah. things in it. Not uh, and rumor has stuff. it is like a really uh, trouble yeah. was a trouble movie, but but then lately, you know, with the, with the streaming and all the cable and so Hatfield McCoys, I heard everybody liked. I think a lot of people liked Hatfield McCoys. Have you watched any of Yellowstone? And Yellowstone. No, although I will. Literally, everyone I know. Uh, Old Henry completely I mean, I, aside, everyone I know is like, "Oh, you, should, you and your wife should be watching this." I was like, oh, "Okay." I'm only like halfway through the first season. I think they're about to start the fourth season and do spinoffs. So I'm not. I, I what a little I've seen, but like it just. I'm surprised that he still has only done the three. He's still to this day, and it's not. That, wait, like, the three he, what? Directing he's, only. He's oh, directed oh, oh, only right. three movies. Well, he's produced a lot. He's he's his producing fingers, and he still is is a, on on a lot of the projects. But the actual directing. He's in a live band too, doesn't he? Doesn't he sing and perform in a band? Um, I mean, I'm I going think, off the uh, the Postman, but if you know, I, I not to always come back to him, but I just I learned a lot from him when I work, which is John Leguizamo. Like John actually said, and I, I wonder, I don't, I have no idea if this is Costner's thing or not, but like when I asked John, right right as we were finishing up Critical Thinking, I was like, oh, like so, what's next on the docket? And he was like, oh, well, I've got this and this, and I was like, no, 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 not acting, like to direct. And he was like, oh, um, he's like, I don't know. We'll see what comes along. And like, but he said, he was like, he goes, I'm, he's like, I'm not dying to direct. Okay. And he was like, and he goes, and I was like, real, I said, you realize like, I think this film's going to kind of make a big splash. And like, you're, if you want to start directing, this will, this will be the way you do it. Like you just, you just let your people, like you've already got people, just let them know. Like I want to direct now. Um, uh-huh. And he goes, yeah, he goes, but the problem is he's like, you know, as soon as you say yes to directing a film, like that's the next like three years of your life. And he goes, and like, I'm an actor. Like I want to act. I don't want to stop acting. And he goes, but like, I would have to, I wouldn't be able to take anything like serious. And he's like, I just, he goes, it's just so much work for what I, he's like, personally, like the the payoff, it's like, it doesn't kind of balance out for me. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Like, right. If you're, if you're a young up and comer writer director it's like the goal is just to make the next movie but i like i get it it's like depending and i wonder if costner is in a similar thing where he's just like i just don't want to take three years to like go through the you know from from getting a script written all the way through the end of like press it's like yeah it's about three years so and open range was so low budget that it made some money and got some and got this got him out of director's jail you just surprised that he never went back but i don't know i'm honestly the thing movie i'm thinking about that that we didn't mention is uh it's such a small part is molly's game where he gets to work with aaron sorkin and jessica chastain and he's i i mean i love that film i love that film I've, especially his appearance at the end where like how he comes in yeah he's so and and like 
that's the sort of stuff where I'm like, oh man, I could watch Costner show up and do this sort of stuff all day. Cause he like, right. I mean, you, you know, we, this, we will not get into this, but I even liked him in, in a, a, a man of steel. Like, Oh no. I was, gonna, no, I, was, I, was I had to say enough. he's, good enough. he's, he's good perfect enough. casting for Paul. Yeah. Kent. You know, Glenn Ford, Kevin Costner. I mean, you know, that's just, you know, you can't get any better than that for Paul Kent to represent the, yeah, yeah. the father. Pa Kent, not Paul. You're, you're, Paul Kent. You're saying Paul? Pa. 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 Right. Pa. Right. I mean, I like, I was very, like, I really liked him in that role. I was like, he, he brings just the right amount of like gravitas and wisdom yeah. and like, you know. Yeah. Oh, wait. Well, wait till you see him and don't let uh, uh, let him go because it's 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 Ma and Paul Kinn again. Okay. Because Diane, right, right, right. They're, they're a married yeah. couple. It's yeah. it's it's on it's on HBO Max too. Chemistry is right great. Can we go back to one specific thing about Open Range that I'm dying to like? I've been dying to. Talk yeah, about yeah, yeah, sure, sure. It. All right, the closing shootout, right? So we we already kind of talked about it. This was one of the big reasons we uh, going back to Old Henry too. Well, yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't mind saying, and I want to be well. I'll just say it. I won't preface. Uh, so. We talked about how, again, if you haven't seen Open Range at this point, sorry that this is a spoiler, but like, uh, you know, we talked about how like the beginning of that gunfight is so iconic because it's just he just like walks up and just shoots the guy in the head. No ceremony, no warning. There's no honor in it. He just murders him. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get him to stop talking. The line that leads up to it is like, it's a really short terse line, but it like defines why because he's like, and he's to the point, he's like, you're the guy that killed our friend or killed our friend so you have the motive right there right. and the audience is with him when he does it it's just like it's such a well because remember then the guy goes yeah and i killed i shot the boy too like you know yeah, yeah yeah and so of course it's just i mean justified within within that setting in in movie morality okay but, but the, yeah. then from the second that happens then the then the shooting starts right i'm sure you saw this but kevin costner proceeds to fire 13 shots from the one gun that he has pulled out of his holster I didn't count, but it did seem like a. Um, and now this is a is a Western thing, though, isn't it? If it's just well, like stop counting yes, bullets but, after a certain but point. But this is actually something like okay, so this is where like my nerdiness kind of comes into what I do. Where like so when okay. Potsy told me like oh really really watch Open Range because when we do the final fight scene like we're really kind of basing the feel and the pacing on that, and I was like okay cool cool. So for weeks I was like watching it, rewatching it, and even going slow. And I even brought it into like brought it in a premiere and like just to see like how oh, we're wow. cutting it. And that's how I discovered. I was like, wait a second here, like that, like the way you know, if you're listening, and I confirmed it on this rewatch. Like I was like, I want to make sure I'm really right about this. It's 13 shots, <laughs> and you see many of them, but there's even a bunch of off screen. And the way you know that is if you're really like I was watching it with headphones. There's a very distinctive sound to his gun. You, did you have your waveform activated? No, no I didn't. I didn't go that far. But okay. but because Duval actually says he carries like, and the only reason I know this this stuff is because I I had to actually like pull sound effects for Old Henry. So like Duval's carrying this old like Colt Navy, which is like a big. He even talks about it in the movie. It's a big heavy gun. Um, you know, it was it it was a large weapon and like had a very. It was like sounded like a cannon. And Costner's, I don't know specifically what the model is, but it's a much lighter six shooter. Um, and so, you know, the sound team rightfully like really discerns between the sound of Costner's gun versus the sound of Duvall's gun. Okay. And so there's no differentiate or there's no mistaking the two. That's right. Like you always like, and that's something sound people do and rightfully so. It's like, you, you don't want right. to be confused. Like who's shooting? It's like, if you're, it, even if you, don't, even if the audience isn't, 
like actively IDing those things, it does seep in your head and you are aware of like the difference. So, so it's very clear. It's very clear that Costner's and, and also just because like he just never draws his second sidearm until later. And he certainly sure, doesn't. I, I did. I, I, that, that I did pick up on. So I said, so when I, when I watch this stuff, I remember writing back to Potsy or like texting him being like, okay, like I've watched it. It's great. I totally see like what you're going for and like what, like they hadn't even shot it yet. But I was like, just promise me. I was like, please do me one favor because it's just a thing that drives me insane when I watch movies, you know, is the, you know, we call it the, like the magic gun. Right. And it's like the magic gun that never runs out of bullets. And in the Mm eighties, it was a big thing. They just didn't care like, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone. It's like, they just never reloaded their weapons. And you're just like, well, I guess they just keep firing. And like, but, and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, that's the one part we're not going to do. He goes, we actually like our, our armorer and Tim have actually been like working through this of like where he will reload during this okay. whole sequence, because we don't want to do that. We really want to be like accurate. And he's like, and a big part of what I'm trying to do is show not to give anything away, but the idea of how many bullets do you have left comes very much into play at the very end of old Henry. Mm -hmm. And he's like, so we really like, we can't get it wrong before since we're going to make such a point of it at the very end. Uh, I, I was so curious about this on open range just to keep it with open range that I like, I just started Googling everything I could about like, you know, open range, final shootout, number of shots and all this stuff. And I found a thing where Costner full out admitted, he was like, oh, that was totally on purpose. Like I, he goes, and I, I have no idea why he didn't, he didn't say why this was, but apparently he actually said like, I'd always wanted to do a movie where I fire. He's like, I fired guns in lots of movies, but he's like, I've always wanted to do a movie where like, I just, fire you know where the gun just like fires more bullets than is humanly possible why he'd want to do that i have no idea but he explicitly said like it's absolutely on purpose and now here's what i would say okay as an editor who's you know worked on a few movies it's a choice well or was it or is that a defense? Is that the one ch- way he can kind of defend a really glaring like continuity issue, like after the fact, by just being like, "Yeah, I wanted to do that." It's like a little, it's a little gag. It's like a nod. So, like, listen, I'll take him at his word, but it's the only place in the movie where they do something that just like kind of doesn't fit with like the grittiness and the reality of this world they built, mm-hmm. and certainly. I know like, well, any, any good editor, and I, I'm not familiar with the people that cut this film, but they've like, they're, they were not like first timers. Like any good editor is going to be the first one to raise their hand and be like, uh, Kevin, like, this is a problem. Like we, we can't do this. Like it's, you're clearly, you've got a six shooter. There's like lots of shots. So that's the number of bullets is in its name. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I realized like it, it maybe, maybe you just have to believe him, but in old Henry, like I said, that that was a thing, thankfully, that was well thought about on set. And when I just finally got to see it, like on the big screen with the full mix and everything this past Friday, I was like, man, you really feel that. Like, you really feel that, like, you know, if you don't have bullets on you and if you aren't pretty quick reloading a six shooter, 
like you're dead like you're just dead because like and if you run out of bullets at the wrong moment you are also dead um i feel like the only time anyone cinematically gets the number of bullets right in the reload is uh if if anyone has a musket (laughs) and it has to take a minute to reload it's the only time they get it right Let me ask you about, you said that, you know, he told you to watch open range. Uh, I thought this is interesting. I, uh, you know, I've always heard, especially uh, with Scorsese, you know, he'll, he'll have the cast and the crew uh, watch uh, movies, certainly, you know, yeah. that he, and, and I, 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 now I'm hearing that a lot of directors do that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and they obviously makes sense for the cinematographer and the, and the actors. Uh, but so the editors do that too. Are there, are there directors? Are, 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 it sounds like you did this, you were watching some on your own. Yeah. Uh, but do, uh, how many times does that happen with uh, directors telling editors to watch certain films, you think, uh, on the average? In my experience, it's maybe half the time. But, and if they don't, I ask. And what I've found okay. is that when I ask, the response is usually like, oh, uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I have reference movies. Like, like, sometimes they're surprised that I want to also watch them. And I'll say, Uh like, if you've got stuff you're watching with your DP, like, I would like to see those as well. Um, Because, honestly, it's just, like, I've always been kind of... The romance of my job, to me, is in the craft, right? Like, Like, I fully admit, like, I'm kind of a nerd about it. Like, I love this idea of learning a craft and getting so good at it that it translates into art. And I'm not saying I'm there yet. I'm just saying like that idea is kind of what fuels me. And like the great editors that I like really admire, it's very obvious to me that, that they have reached that place. I mean, I'll, just one one of many, many, many examples, but is Thelma Schoonmacher, who's Scorsese's mm-hmm. editor. Like, I'm constantly going on and on about her, you know, not because I think she is the world's greatest editor. I think, actually, she is absolutely one of them. But it's more <laughs> about, like, there is almost no other living editor who has cut the breadth of genre that she's done because she's worked with Scorsese, right? Like she's done, I mean, you know, mob pictures, costume dramas, comedies, horror films. Kundun. My God. Oh my God. Like silence, like just you name a subgenre film and Scorsese Mm. has worked in it, which means she has cut it. And what's crazy to me about that is most of us, working in today's like movie ecosystem like it's you you get pigeonholed really fast you do two horror films and people refer to you as a horror editor or you know if you do two comedies you become a comedy editor and it's very hard and it's which is crazy because those are just all like you know middle middle management execs deciding that for you and it's but it, but it does literally happen to all of us so like in my career i've always been like really careful um, and thoughtful about what films I do next because I don't want that to happen. And because I also know that I've, I've learned, I learn more 
And I think my skills grow by doing things that are a little different than the thing I did before, because hopefully I can bring whatever I learned on the last thing and apply it like in a different way to this new project. So, uh, so, you know, because of that, like the, just this idea of craft, um, just like any other craft, carpentry, sculpture, you know, uh, I don't know. I can't think of anything else, but I, I always say, or you know, it may sound funny, but baking, I think is, or I mean, a, a cooking is like a really a, good a, example. A favorite. Yeah. You know, the more you do it, the more you just instinctively understand the basics. You don't need to know how to chop an onion. You can do it in your sleep. Uh, you don't need to know like how to use butter versus oil because like you just, you, it's just, it becomes kind of in your DNA. If you get your 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, even better. That's exactly right. And I use that example too, but it's like, so I'm kind of, I've always been really like, like focused on this idea of the more, like the more I do it, the more those things do actually start to become like unsaid and I don't need to think about them. And I've noticed that that means now I can focus on like slightly higher concept things. And then sometimes those things become ingrained and now I can focus on even higher concept things. And, you know, so that's part of why I do so much research to bring it back, I guess, to your question. It's like, I, because I do a lot of research to, to get a sense of like, all right, like I know how to cut, you know, I can cut this scene and I can make it work and I can make it just go from point A to point B to point C. But like, is there anything I can do to maybe like elevate it? Is there anything I can do using my tool set to make it even like cooler than it was the way they shot it? And sometimes the answer is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. But like, to me, that's, that's like, that's where the art of it kind of comes in. Um, and that my opinion is that like, it does kind of take the, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours things thing to like, to start to be able to do that. You can get lucky before that or fortunate. Like you said, sometimes you just get a film that's just shot so well, it just, it cuts itself. And that's great. That's, I love when that happens, but it's not always yeah. the case. Yeah, it's not always the case. Uh, Jamie Kirkpatrick, thank you for doing this podcast. Oh my gosh, it was such a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, thank you so much. Come back sometime. Thank you.